Hello, listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident ancient literature person and language guy. <laughs> and I'm Allison, um, and I'm your Roman archaeologist and uh, late antique person. I said language guy super jauntily, and I don't think either of us were prepared I know. for that. I'm so sorry. It was it was funny. <laughs> anyway, so on this episode of the podcast, we will be discussing a single episode of the very recent Netflix docu-series Ancient Apocalypse with Graham Hancock. Well, okay, so <laughs> it, yeah. Whew. So, okay, well, so, okay, so I'll give a little, I'll give a little background because it won't be quite as recent by the time this episode actually comes out, but it came out in November of 2020 and we are recording this episode on December 1st. So this shit is like two weeks old. We don't even have to do like an, ooh, did you like it? It's bad. It's fucking rancid ass white supremacist conspiracy theory, pseudo archaeological bullshit. And we will get into why. (laughs) Yep. Both of us took, like, screeds of notes on this because, like, every single sentence w- of the show is bad. And and Allison is a true scholar and, and took her notes, like, in an actual notebook. So if you hear page flipping, that's why. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, basically, we have got a lot to say about even just this single. So we picked a single episode. I think it's episode four. Five? I think it's five. Five? Okay. Well, one of the ones, it's like an eight episode series. We picked one of the ones from the middle that was like relevant to our region and area of expertise, at least a little bit. But neither of us, I don't know, Allison, have you watched other episodes? I was sitting a few weeks uh, in my living room with my roommate and we were like looking at Netflix for some reason. I don't know why. But then we saw this pop up and we were both like, what is this? And then we looked at it and we're like, okay. And then I Googled Graham Hancock and I was like, oh, right, it's this guy. And then so we rage watched it and Sophie sat there where I yelled at the the, the TV for like an hour. So we watched two episodes. Two episodes. Okay. (laughs) The first two episodes. Yeah. Aside from this one, I've seen two episodes. Okay. It was a waste of my time and um, it made me, it, it killed my brain cells. Yeah. I've, I've only watched this one episode. So we are looking at episode four or five or whatever. I'm not going to fucking look it up because I don't give a shit. Um, we're looking at some episode, the one that is on uh, Gobekli Tepe, which is, or Tepe? Tepe. Tepe. Gobekli Tepe, which is a, a Stone Age site in southeastern Turkey. Yes, it's Stone Age. We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, well, and we'll go with Stone Age, and we will talk about dating and the age of this thing a bit, because that's what this show is all about. So I guess to give a little kind of premise of the show, basically, Graham Hancock is a fucking far-right white supremacist douchebag who has been peddling the theory for several decades that there was a super advanced civilization that existed during the Ice Age, which was wiped out during a period of climatic uh, upheaval on the planet called the Younger Dryass, (laughs) and that they were wiped out during the Younger Dryass, but before or possibly during somehow that period 
they sent out emissaries all over the planet to different Ice Age civil, like, groups of hunter-gatherer people and taught them astronomy, stone carving, and agriculture. Those are the, those are the three things. Um, and, and, like, specifically stone architecture. And that everything that we, that we have evidence of this, big air quotes around evidence, by way of these ancient, like super, super ancient sites that are all over the world and have some like similarities to them. That is his thesis. Do you feel that I represented that correctly, Allison? Yeah, yeah, I think that's accurate. Okay, that is my understanding. I have not read any of this dude's several books, so. It's kind of unclear, like, how this ancient civilization, like, okay, like, how did they die off? Like, did all of them just show up? It's, it's like, unclear the mechanics of how this ancient civilization taught these, like, our ancestors how to do stuff. I don't know. It's it's a little confusing. He's honestly not very clear. Yeah, well, and, like, did they exist prior to the Younger Dryas, and then they were wiped out during it, and then... But somehow they managed to deliver this information towards the end so that it could actually be useful to people who were, like, emerging from their caves. That wouldn't make a ton of sense because the Younger Dryas was, like, a thousand years. Yeah, I I texted Julia while I was watching this, and I was like, honestly, Ancient Aliens is a more, like, believable theory than this. Because Ancient Aliens, you can trace this, like... Like, the steps in that are aliens descended, told people about technology, and left. Graham Hancock doesn't actually, like, he doesn't provide that. Like, there's not even that much information provided, like, how we get from point A to point B, regardless of how ridiculous that story is. He doesn't even, like, provide a clear story. So I I just don't even know. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the specifics of the quote-unquote evidence that he finds at Gobekli Tepe. And Tepe, I'm going to continue to mispronounce that. I'm so sorry. Um, as extreme apologies to my classmate Hakan, who is Turkish and <laughs> speaks Turkish, and I am sure I'm pronouncing this like rubbish. But um, I th- we'll get into the the evidence at that site that he presents in this specific episode. However... There are some significant flaws in the overall thesis. The main one being if there was some grand, like, advanced civilization that had the technologies of agriculture and and stone architecture and stuff like that. Like, why did none of that endure the way that Gobekli Tepe Tepe and other Stone Age and pre-Stone Age sites and and artifacts and so on, like Paleolithic sites, um, have. Because, like, I'm going to bring up cave painting again in this episode, but, for example, this is literally on Wikipedia. The oldest known cave paintings are more than 40,000 years old. So I don't really understand why, like, geologically speaking, if there was some immensely advanced, technologically advanced Ice Age civilization, why we would have no traces of them other than their supposed influence on an improbably broad spread of diverse cultures across the planet. 
Yeah. And yeah, like you make a good point is like, okay, we have technologies and art from before the younger Dryas and this like big climatic shift. So Graham Hancock doesn't claim in any of the episodes that I watched that those are part of this like older civilization or whatever. I have a few things I want to say about, yeah, some pale, well, even pre-Paleolithic stuff too, but I, it just is, I don't, I don't get it. I don't. Yeah. Again, I, ancient aliens like genuinely makes more sense to me than, than this does. Yeah. Because to be honest, I, so here's where I admit publicly on the internet, like, I don't think we're alone in the universe. And if I were provided with some convincing evidence that prehistorical civilizations had been visited by aliens, I would probably be like, okay, sure. Because I believe aliens exist. But I don't believe that an Ice Age human civilization with advanced technology existed because there's no fucking evidence of that and it seems wildly improbable in a way that aliens didn't. To be clear, I don't think aliens visited prehistoric humans because I have never seen any evidence to suggest that. But I would be willing to accept it if there was evidence. And similarly, if, Han- if Hancock had at any point in this episode been able to present me with evidence that such a civilization likely or even plausibly existed aside from flagrant misinterpretation or like complete ignorance of Occam's razor as far as the evidence at other like Stone Age at like Stone Age sites in various parts of the world. Yeah, I would probably be willing to accept the theory, but I don't think he presents any evidence. But I am fully prepared to walk through point by point every fucking thing he says in this episode and tear it to shreds because I just think that it doesn't hang together. But we'll get to that. So this episode is less than half an hour. I think it took me an hour and a half to watch the episode. I have six pages of notes, including several excerpts from articles responding to this show. I definitely saw a bunch of interesting Twitter threads. And then I don't think, I don't even know if I like them. I'll see if I can track them down. Hopefully we can just stick in our show notes like a bunch of stuff other people have said because yeah, this has been discussed by a lot of people and discussed by a lot of people in like very like interesting and intelligent and ways. So yeah, we can stick all of that in there. This guy's been doing his bullshit for a long time. So Oh, yeah. totally. Um, But we'll get to kind of public media response, like mainstream media responses to this show, probably at the end. So we have something of a roadmap for this episode. First, Allison is going to take us on a jaunty little stroll through some, like, how to do archaeology shit. Um, And then we're going to break down the episode. And then I think we're going to talk about broad takeaways and responses, too. And, yeah. Yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm on, yeah, I'm going to do a little, like, get on, get on a little tour bus. That's what the, like, word jaunt is, like, I'm going to get on a tour bus and, like, show the archaeological site and give a little explanation. Anyway, I'll just ramble. No, for sure. Let's, let's do that. So, do you want to explain us how archaeology do? <laughs> <laughs> that was not a coherent sentence. So... Th- a lot of stuff that this man, Mr. Hancock, sir, bases his his theories on is dating evidence. So, like, what time period? He's very, like, this comes from this time period. And because it comes from this time period, then this means, like, that this came before this. And it's really important. We'll go through, like, the details. But he, he puts a big emphasis on when 
things are dated to. And it is really important to note that dating ancient materials is extremely difficult and is a huge pain in the ass and even quote unquote like sort of more like scientific methodologies that are portrayed as super accurate like aren't. So the first method people used to do any sort of dating was creating relative chronologies. So when you excavate, basically you like take off like layer by layer by layer, right? And like the the basis of relative chronologies is really simple. It's like, okay, well, this thing is underneath this thing. And so it must be older. Like that's that's it. That's a relative chronology. So then you can, if you have a lot of information from different time periods, like a, lo a lot of different artifacts that you've excavated in layers, and then you can sort of draw conclusions across from that, then you can be like, okay, well, there's a time period that we can put together where, okay, like all of these objects seem the same. And then from the levels above, there's another clear change in all the objects. So materials that people tend to use for relative chronology is in Eurasia for the sort of periods we're talking about. It's largely ceramics. And in parts of North America, um, a lot of it is stone tools um, as well in sort of like pre sort of pre-ceramics in Eurasia. It's also stone tools. So those are the two sort of main objects that get used for relative chronology because um, those are objects that are so frequent. Even like, for example, when you're dealing with like Pacific Nor Northwest Coast archaeology, which is uh, what I like work in pretty well the artifacts that you're going to find are all stone tools, right? So like, um, mm -hmm. and then the same thing with ceramics is, you know, there's maybe like in like Roman archaeology, there's obviously a much like sort of broader material types that I'm used to, that you're used to finding, but by far like the most stuff is ceramics. Like if you go excavate in a lot of places, like you'll find millions of pieces of ceramic. And even places with fewer ceramic, like that's the material you expect to see because it's so ubiquitous. Um, anyway, all that to say is that you use these really, really common material types um, to create these relative chronologies. So basically before, you know, we had any sort of like concrete dating methodologies where we could say, okay, this is from this time period. Basically what we were saying is like, okay, well, this ceramic dish is this shape. And, and then in everything that seems to be in, in like a site, okay, we find this ceramic dish shape. And then in the next layer up, we find a different ceramic dish shape. And then in the next layer up, we find a different shape. And so, and then you go to a bunch of other sites and it's like that. And so you're like, okay, well, this ceramic dish shape is one period. And then this ceramic dish shape is like another period and so on and so on. So then when you find that same ceramic dish shape, maybe out of context, you can go, oh, so this must be from X or Y period. Yeah. And so this gets really confusing really quickly because... <laughs> Um, so basically you can say you, with a ceramic, for example, with a ceramic dish, this is actually easier to explain with coins. And this was a big part of my thesis actually was talking about how this guy did coins wrong. Um, so say <laughs> you have a coin from 364 CE. Just as a random example. This, <laughs> this has nothing to do with my research at all. I'm not mad about this. Um, <laughs> no, no, sorry, pop off. <laughs> And so with that, with that coin, you can be like, okay, well, this coin couldn't have existed before 364 CE. However, that doesn't mean it is from 364 CE, right? Right, because it could be somebody later imitating or something like that. Or, or just people use coinage for a long time, right? Like yeah, sometimes right. 
Like, it doesn't, you know, sometimes you'll, like, I don't know, get your, like, nickel or whatever, your quarter, and you'll be like, oh, this quarter's from 1960. Especially stuff like coinage stays in circulation for a long time, and it, especially when it used to be made with valuable metal, because it's like, okay, well, there's no reason for this to go out of use, right? So right. that that's that's the, the problem, even with uh, with any sort of relative dating is that usually you can say okay well so we have our we we know this this object couldn't have existed before this time but we don't actually know that it actually came from the period we generally associate with it if it's out of context so there's that whole mess <laughs> and then but even when we get into sort of more so what we would call an absolute dating methodology that's also really complicated so um, an absolute dating methodology would be um, something like carbon-14 dating, which I'm sure like most people have probably heard of. There's other forms of isotope dating as well. Carbon-14 is the one that gets used to this period for this period because of its half-life. Um, so this is a little confusing and sciencey. And I had to write a, I decided to write a paper about this in college. And it was mostly me staring at like graphs and being like, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> um, but basically, so how carbon-14 dating works is carbon-14 is an isotope of carbon. So it has like a certain number of electrons, protons or neutrons. No, it's not electrons. This one's not electrons. Oh, my God. Sorry. I, uh, Yeah, I think it's protons. I think it's protons. I'm not going to try and explain what a carbon isotope is because it's too confusing. Um, and frankly, I can't actually find the answer quickly. It is a it is a kind of carbon. Yes, it is it is a a type of carbon atom. Yeah. And um it's it's radioactive. So it actually decays into nitrogen 14. Um mm. so I guess that would mean yeah, anyway. So it it basically it it because it's radioactive and it's releasing particles, it it turns into another type of atom over time. Just like, you know, would happen with any sort of like materials, you know, you'd use like at a nuclear power plant or whatever, except this isn't actually dangerous. Anyway, um, so carbon-14 is a carbon isotope that plants absorb from the atmosphere. And then so they have stores of carbon-14 and then animals eat said plants and humans and or other animals eat said animals. And so basically every living th thing has a constantly replenishing store of carbon-14. Now, when something dies, it's no longer ingesting carbon-14. And so then if you take a piece of organic material, and that's the one thing about it, this only works if you have organic material, you can basically look at the piece of organic material and be like, okay, what's the ratio of carbon-14 to nitrogen-14? Um, mm. because you basically like, we know the half-life of, of carbon 14, which is the amount of time it takes for half of a certain amount of carbon to turn into nitrogen 14. And I believe it's something like 5,000 years. And this half-life is really important for like what sort of age of stuff you can use, you can date stuff with, because like if the half-life is really long, then enough of the particles won't have decayed in uh to make sense of it so i know some sort of for like for doing the dating for hominids they it's i think there's like potassium dating they use a different isotope which with that has like a much longer half-life so anyway so basically all that to say is radiocarbon dating is the type of 
radiometric dating that gets used for to try and date stuff from this time period. Now, <laughs> radiocarbon dating, the thing is with, with radiocarbon dating is you don't get a specific number. What you get when you do radiocarbon dating is you get a number and then you get an error margin. So for example, you might get 5,000 years, what uses BP before present, and then plus or minus like 50 years or plus or minus 100 years. So you get a, you get a date range, you don't get a specific date. That's the fir- first thing. And the date ranges can be like quite big. Again, like a few hundred years of error. The second thing here is that carbon does not necessarily decay steadily over time. Like there's an average rate of decay, but it's not it's not perfect. It's not like, okay, well, this is going to decay exactly the same over every year. And then the latest thing is that before present, BP, when you see something's BP, it actually dates to 1950 because we fucked up the environment so much that now if we try to measure it from the present, uh, our carbon stores in the atmosphere are all fucked up. So uh, I hate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you say something is a date, a BP, it means before 1950 because of how badly we fucked up the atmosphere. Great. Um, That's great. So Jesus Christ. Okay, well, okay, so, great. Sorry, that that caused me a mental breakdown. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, sorry. No, it's, I, I'm, I'm glad to know, uh, but also, fuck. <laughs> this, this gets even more confusing, and I'm giving the oh, shit. Okay. bare bones layman's, this is what I understand of this, like, this is, it's science TM. It's complicated. I don't really know how atoms work. All of this to say is that precise dates don't exist, really, especially when we're talking this far back. If anybody's like, this happened in this year, it's just not possible. We just can't give that level of certainty. Stuff that I don't know exactly what they've used for dating at Gobekli Tepe. The dates that he gives in the show, they're in line with the dates that I am aware of as being accurate. That in itself is not a problem. Yeah, well, and I I will say, like, one thing to be said about this is that, so he talks about them having done radiocarbon dating at this site, which as far as I know is the truth, um, that they did radiocarbon date both the megaliths at, so for the listener who may not be familiar with Gobekli Gobekli Tepe, Tepe. For those who may not be familiar with it and what it looks like, um, it is a series of big fucking rocks, also known as megaliths. That is the official term. Which does actually mean big rock, so. (laughs) It's some fucking scientist looked at that shit and was like, that's a big rock. And everyone was like, yeah. People basically took ancient Greek and used it and it sounds sciencey and fancy now, but it all of the stuff is like is like that. It's like ah yes, megalith, big rock. <laughs> yeah, but the important thing is that it's a bunch of big rocks, and there was, and it's a big hill, and there's many, there's these like circles of big rocks. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take over from you in these descriptions. <laughs> so yeah, so Gobekli Tepe, basically what it is, yeah, there's a hill, and people built a bunch of essentially this is what we sort of call monumental architecture. So big thing big and so it's a series of like large stone circles with t-shaped large stone t-shaped pillars in the middle we don't you know all of we have as the structure is stone i don't really know if there was anything else involved in the structure about whether or not it there was some sort of like roof support or something 
I'm not aware. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think they're just shaped like T's. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So just imagine a really big stone circle with these very large stone T-shaped pillars. Um, And also some of them had sort of benches, you know, like little stone, little benches, platforms around the edge for people to sit on. And they all have like relief carvings on them. So essentially when you see a carving that something carved into a stone that isn't fully 3D, you would call that a relief. So, and those are generally of a a lot of animal figures and a lot of human figures um, and some sort of like geometric-y designs. Um, And it's also worth, important to know that they're very stylized. Um, And so this is true of Gobekli Tepe and then also another site that they mentioned, which is... Karhan Tepe. So I think at Karhan Tepe as well, they did have, there was some slightly different architectural things. There was actually a big head coming out of the wall so like a full 3d stone carved large head coming out of the wall we'll talk about the big head (laughs) but yeah all that to say but it's mostly these very most of the art is these very stylized incised figures on the t-posts themselves and the t-posts are sort of made of like a very large blocks of stone whereas like I'm pretty sure the circles are you know sort of you know the way you would build a wall with stones and putting stones on top of one another they're not that in and of itself is not a the the, they're not monumental stones that are being used to make the walls but the t-posts are the t-posts are yeah something like essentially you know not like stonehenge size stones but that sort of idea right like one big piece of stone as opposed to being built of smaller pieces of stone yeah it's also worth noting, and so so the, the reason that I was kind of like, maybe we should describe this, is because the thing, the other thing that's worth noting is that, so when they dated this thing, and he talks about this in the show, and as far as I could tell from Googling around about it, this is the truth. When they dated this thing, one of the things they found is that, um, first of all, there's actually more of these enclosures, like, in the hill that are yet unexcavated, like, very a very small proportion of this overall site which is in fact fucking massive is currently excavated and like most of it has not been studied at all in fact because it is still underground but one of the things that they found when they radiocarbon dated both the stones and like the enclosures like the walls of the enclosures which were also built out of stone but as Allison said kind of differently and then the fill the like dirt and pebbles and shit that were in the enclosures filling it up before it was dug out those are they date they've dated all of that stuff and it seems like it was in use up to a point and then kind of all at once it was filled in at at some certain point along the way uh and we don't know exactly why or what the fuck which is you know and like so he talks about this and we can we will get to this but that's a fair question is like why why fill it in um And I mean, I can think of some explanations about why you might fill in what was presumably some kind of sacred site before you abandoned it. But like, that's, (laughs) you know, that's somewhat immaterial to the overall thing, which is that technically what he says about that is in fact the truth that they have carbon dated various parts of this site. There are dates, but as also as Allison has lovingly described for us in reasonably understandable terms given how fucking complicated it is carbon dating is like not the most reliable shit i mean it's reliable but it's not precise so okay we should get into the 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 play-by-play of this episode all right so i took pretty meticulous notes so i will walk us through his points i guess if you're 
okay with that. Yeah. Uh, in the opening of the show, he begins by talking about the sky and how, um, like, in ancient civilizations, this is like the cold open, quote, to the ancient stargazing would have been the greatest show on Earth. So he's talking about the significance of the stars in the sky to ancient civilizations. I had to pause. First, first I had to pause and make a note that says in Wiggly's light pollution evil. Ooh. And then I had to pause again in response to the stargazing would have been the greatest show on earth thing to be like, bitch, they had poems and plays and <coughs> art and shit like that. Like, yes, at night when it's dark, probably like the ancients did spend a lot of time looking at the sky and the sky was important and significant to many, many, if not all ancient cultures. However, it's very, it's just a weird, it's like right off the bat, a weird framing of the relationship of humanity to stars. So here's the thing, is I took issue with every single word in the sentence that's like, to the ancients, like, stargazing would have been the greatest show. I was like, every single word in that sentence is something that I could unpack. Um, first of all, I hate the fact that he says to the ancients. I, I think his framing of this by using the word ancients, like, lends a sort of, like, mystery, a sort of, like, mysteriousness to these ancient peoples. And that's what he's really going for, right? Because he's trying to make it sound like there's a mysterious ancient civilization. Ooh. So, like, th the words he uses and he, the way he, like, down to the way he structures his sentences and the words that he's using is part of his, his rhetoric to convince you of this. Yeah. And like, to be clear in the beginning, and in fact, throughout, he's constantly talking in broad terms about, ooh, the ancients, these ancient primitive hunter gatherers, blah, blah. He never talks in specific about the, the native peoples of the area that he is talking about, which is to say, what is now in the modern day southeastern Turkey. This is like pre-Sumer Sumeria, is my understanding. Well, no, so not not quite. Uh, Sumeria is actually quite a bit further south. So okay. what we're talking about here. So, okay, so, so to give sort of a, like a geographic explanation, this area is sort of in the Fertile Crescent. And what the Fertile Crescent is, is it's a crescent shape. And basically it runs from uh, sort of where the Tigris and Euphrates like pour out into the Persian Gulf. Bro, I don't know. <laughs> Into whatever sea that is there. So the ends of the Tigris and Euphrates River in Iraq, and then it follows the river, right? Because a lot of that region is very arid, um, but by the river, it's fertile because there's water you can use for um, like uh, like irrigation and stuff. So there's, there's going to be more plant life. And this is where uh, agriculture first developed. Yes, because it's wet. <laughs> yeah. They should call it the moist crescent. <laughs> No, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Why would you say that? It popped into my head and I have no control. I have no power. I have no, I, I am just, I'm a shell of a man, Allison. Yeah. So um, basically where uh, Gobekli Tepe is, is pretty well sort of the, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Those um are in their... Their source is in the sort of like mountainous highland region of Turkey, which is in that sort of, I think it's a little bit further up than Gobekli Tepe is, but Gobekli Tepe is kind of in that area. And the Fertile Crescent like swoops around there and then it swoops down through the the Levantine, partway down through the Levantine coast, like 
through kind of like Syria. Um, yeah, through the Levantine coast. So that's, that's what we call the Fertile Crescent. So um, this is actually not really anywhere near sort of what we would consider sort of the first like city states, which is down in Sumer, down at the in Iraq, at the mouth of uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris. Mm, okay. So that's, yeah, that's sort of geographically right uh what the situation is but it's but it's in that it's in the sort of bigger area where agriculture is sort of first developing it's interesting then the way that he brings up the so he brings up the sumerians later in the episode and that's quite misleading then because i was under the impression that that was kind of the same region um but apparently not (laughs) no the like southern turkey is a long way from the coast of iraq yeah, I mean, I also just don't have any fucking sense of geography, so that one's on me. No, that's not at you, but, like, well, because the thing is, is, like, who's familiar with where the Sumerians are, right? Like, that's really a, like... It, he kind of shows a map, but it's, like, a little chunk of a map. Yeah, and it is it is true that these sort of developments get talked about, like, in concert with one another. Like, this is part of, like, like when I had to take Near Eastern archaeology we would always start by talking about this sort of time period, the Neolithic, the new stone, stone age, which is when you see the sort of development of agriculture. And this is kind of at the beginning of this period. Mm, okay. Um, and so you, you do sort of talk, like it is sort of standard when teaching this to, you know, sort of go from examples of sort of monumental architecture like this, like Gobekli Tepe at the sort of beginning of this period. There's a few other sort of similar because because basically the idea is that agriculture and the development of sort of city states and monumental architecture all sorts to kind of happen within the same several thousand year period um and so you do you would talk about a site like gobekli tepe and then you know maybe in the next lecture go on to talk about sumer so it, it is reasonable to talk about these two things together um they are sort of part of this kind of like broader development of like of agriculture and monumental architecture and city states and um, social stratification but they're also they are in different places okay cool and sorry can you for the benefit of me and also the audience remind me of what time period approximately this is so right now where um the sort of earliest date that is given for gobekli tepe here is 9600 BCE, which is... So that's about 11,600 years before now. Yes. Um, also, uh, Graham Hancock uses BC, and that just annoys me that he uses BC instead of BCE. Is it, like, actually, like, a methodological, like, issue? No, some people still do that, but it's dumb. I mean, he's, this dude is like, yeah, this dude is like insufferably Christian. So that's like why. Yes. Yep. <laughs> but yeah. So, okay. And so one of the reasons also that I wanted to settle down the, settle down, <laughs> to, to settle the question of the geography is because this is, uh, is that basically he does this shitty preamble about like, ooh, why were the ancients, the ancients so like interested in the sky? And we build these like, we find these ancient structures that are pointing at the night sky. And he talks about like how these things are precisely aligned to the quote precise. They have precise alignments to the sun, moon and stars. Why did the builders take such care to which I say, well, motherfucker, when you use math to build something that's straight, it tends to point upwards. (laughs) 
I just don't know what else to say to that. And to be fair, that is like his shitty cold open preamble, and it doesn't go anywhere in this episode. And then he cuts to like a, a flying overhead shot, probably shot with a drone of the site. It looks like a super cool site. It seems like they've built quite a cool like structure around it so that people can look at it without risking any damage. Um, for the yes. record, this show has incredibly high production value. Netflix. Anyway. And then he starts talking about how this is a, quote, troubled part of the world immediately after name dropping that Gobekli Tepe is on the border of Turkey and Syria. Yeah, I was like, I literally, what does my note say? My note says, great, let's bring the Syrian war and the Kurds into this. Yeah, mine says, this is a troubled part of the world after mentioning Syria. And then I have a sub note that says, I am going to kill. <laughs> I I think it's worth noting at this point that I know people who are more closely related to the Syrian conflict than a lot of other people know. So this is fucking disgusting. It's just like a disgusting, unnecessary, like, ooh, this part of the world is so troubled and full of conflict. It's like, shut the fuck up, man. And like, he specifically mentions Syria. And I understand, like, that is the country that is on the border right there. But like, why the fuck? You don't ha you can say Southwestern Turkey and move on. He's just racist. Yeah. Yes, he is racist. In conclusion, I mean, yeah, we could just end it there. Yeah. Like he's, he's racist. He's racist. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Um, and then, so, and then he starts talking about the Sumerians, which is why I was confused about whether the Sumerians were right in this region, because he goes from talking about where Gobekli Tepe is directly into talking about the Sumerians. There's an extremely loaded use of the term civilization when he declares the Sumerians <laughs> to be the first civilization. And I'm like, okay, well, define civilization. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate the word civilization. What this is sort of generally used to denote, I hate the idea of like, quote unquote, the dawn of civilization or whatever, because it's how we frame what is quote unquote civilized, essentially. Yeah. Which is stupid. But what essentially when people talk about Sumer as like the quote-unquote dawn of civilization. It's the development of the city-state and social stratification. And agriculture is like a big part of that. Yeah, and agri agriculture, the city-state, the city and social stratification. So basically you have a portion of land that is controlled by a small group of people, um, and then there are varying degrees of people below that who do different things so like you don't just have a bunch of people whose job is to like like not everybody's going around and like trying to get food for themselves in the community basically you have people who do the agriculture and then you have you essentially have then social stratification is manufactured well it's manufactured by the fact that you have people doing different jobs mm. and that people are trading food for other things right, right. um and so yeah then you have so basically, the the development of a a political system based on social stratification. That's that's what they mean by the rise of civilization. Now, um, now the actual to be clear, the actual people of the Sum like the actual fucking Sumerians, like the people, they came from somewhere. We all came fucking came from somewhere at some point. There was some manner of civilization in the region. It's just that it was hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherer civilizations are also civilizations. To be clear. Yeah. 
Yeah. Nomadic civilizations are also civilizations. It's it's worth noting here that this is just like again, like this is just it's just incredibly racist. Like yeah. that that's what this framing is of quote unquote civilization as beginning in Sumeria. It's it's fucking racist and it's also part of our framework, the way we sort of use to like discount a lot of indigenous cultures and what is now like specifically North America, because there in a lot of places wasn't the same sort of like use of agriculture as there is it was intensely in Eurasia or the same types of monumental architecture. And so the fact that their cultures and societies don't fall in line with these steps that we've created as quote unquote civilization is it's racist. Yep, it's racist, it's colonialist. (laughs) Yeah, in conclusion. Speaking of racist and colonialist, the next thing that he says, and I'm just going to read a long quote here. Quote, This site requires us to abandon all our prejudices about our Stone Age ancestors. Far from being to, this is not what his accent sounds like, but I am putting this on. (laughs) Far from being technological primitives, their accomplishments here prove that they had hitherto unsuspected abilities rivaling those of much later and supposedly much more advanced civilizations. Literally everything about that sentence is bad. Literally all I wrote as my note for this was, whoo, boy. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to comment on all of this because it's just such a wretched framing. But this is what we're working with. I mean, here's the thing. So Gobekli Tepe, basically in the in the 90s when this was excavated, it basically the sort of conception of the quote unquote big scare quotes over this development of civilization um, is that you get farming and then you get agriculture and then you get monumental architecture and social stratification. Farming was considered to be a necessary first step. And this monumental structure at the beginning of the Neolithic period, sort of prior, during, around the same time people are starting to develop agriculture, kind of turns that on its head. And that's pretty well accepted now. Like, that's what we learned in school. It's like, okay, this thing actually was happening before we have transitioned in some areas, like, to a completely agricultural society that is using domesticate, domesticated plants and animals as like their method of sustenance. And so I'm going to turn briefly and talk about Stonehenge for a hot second, because Stonehenge is, I think, a more familiar touch point for a lot of people when thinking about megalithic um, structures. And so Stonehenge is generally dated to about kind of 3000 BCE to 2000 BCE. Our, um, agriculture was introduced to the British Isles, as it were, around 4,000 BCE. So agriculture existed in, like, what is now England uh, at that point. However, um, I am just going to go ahead and uh, read this um, fun, spicy little quote from EnglishHeritage.org.uk. Quote, the arrival of farming in Britain in about 4000 BC did not, BC, sick, did not immediately (laughs) transform these semi-nomads into year-round permanent settlers. More herdsmen than intensive arable farmers, Neolithic and early Bronze Age people continued to move around territories. These were now focused on great communal monuments like Bella Snap in Gloucestershire and West Kennet Long Barrow in Wiltshire, which um, West Kennet Long Barrow is pretty close to Stonehenge. So it's worth noting, Glo- uh, Gloucestershire is is Gloucester because oh motherfucker, the the English are fucking insane. <laughs> 
Okay, well, great. Gloucester, I'm so sorry to... If I'm not actually right about that, then I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot, but I'm pretty sure it's it's Gloucester. Gloucester, sure. All right. Like Gloucester, Gloucester. What, fucking, it's fine. Name of place that I have mispronounced. Bella, Bella, I probably pronounced the name of the thing, too. It's spelled B-E-L-A-S space K-N-A-P. So these things are, these are large monuments the west Kennet long barrow is big as fuck too and like stonehenge also is kind of just it's about a thousand years post the introduction of agriculture and it seems likely to me that this was also that that like stonehenge i believe stonehenge was also a site where people were returning to it but were not necessarily settled around it and yeah therefore it seems very obvious that that is a likely model for this site as well. Yeah, that's what that's what I essentially learned in school when we talked about this as something where actually like maybe sort of multiple different hunter-gatherer groups would kind of come to to conglomerate yeah. and do something. Do some ritual shit, question mark. We don't know. So here's the here's the thing in archaeology is whenever <laughs> The joke is, is that whenever you find something you don't understand, you call it ritual. This is like a thing that when you're learning, you're in school, people, your profs are like, remember. Listen, it's all ritual when we come down. When All culture is ritual when you come right down to it. So it's fine. Oh, okay. Wow. We're getting getting real, real, real theoretical here. Um, but yeah, they're, they're doing, I don't know what they're doing here. They're doing something. And I don't think it fucking matters. Well, I mean, it's interesting and it matters. Obviously, we would love to know. But as far as disproving the shitheads theory, it doesn't matter. Because the immediate next thing that he says is, and pursuant to your point about you literally being taught in school that it's fine, you don't need agriculture to have monolithic, like, monumental architecture. Quote, based on everything we've been taught about prehistory, it shouldn't exist. Bro, who's been taught? Based on what I've been taught about prehistory, yeah, this is fine, actually. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. Just to talk about this guy. I, I keep forgetting his name, even though I know his name. I keep wanting to call him Graham Linehan. Yeah. So Graham Hancock, Mr. Hancock, sir, he has this framing where he frames himself and the audience in opposition to archaeologists. And he paints archaeologists as sort of old and unwilling to bend to any of their ideas and stuck in their ways and elitist. I'm not going to say that this does not exist in archaeology. That's, you know, for a while, archaeologists were a bunch of upper middle class white men. And that, of course, sometimes did not produce good research. And people were threatened when other people showed up and had different ideas. That being said, archaeology, as is most of academia, are just people constantly arguing with each other about the smallest things. Like, people couldn't agree on, like, the smallest thing. Like, somebody will be like, this plant, this particular version of wheat showed up 2,500 years ago here. And then another guy will be like, no, it showed up 2,600 years ago, five kilometers over there. I mean, case in point, you have an entire chapter of your master's thesis arguing about how a dude dated the coins at the site. Yeah. Like I'm making an argument about like 40 over like 40 years. Yeah. That he did it was I'm making an argument that he that he said basically it's like, "Oh, this happened on this specific date." And I'm like, "Actually, no, we have a 40-year date range." 
But yes, I spent hundreds of hours on that. Yeah. And this is the thing is like, he routinely is like, oh, big archaeology is lying to you. And it's like, big archaeology doesn't fucking exist. Yeah. Anybody who is actually remotely connected to the Academy, which this guy is, I mean, I think he has certainly at least a, I believe he has a graduate degree. And he's written several like actual academic books. So he should know. Quote, unquote, actual academic well, books. Well, yeah, back in, like, the 80s. But, I mean, he, like, he should understand that academics, like, academia as an institution is an institution of people arguing with each other about shit. And, like, yes, yeah. I'm not going to say that the Ivory Tower is not super resistant to change, because it is. It's very hard to get a new theory in the ground. But if you have sufficient evidence, but that's the kicker, right? Yeah. Yeah, and here's the thing. I, I've also been very lucky in my archaeological education in that I have largely worked with people who are very young. Yeah. Um, and so they're not so much set in in sort of older uh, methodological approaches um, and not so resistant to change. Somebody I worked with a lot in my undergrad and master's degree um, who have like excavated within stuff and who um, was one of the readers on my thesis, um, Dr. Kevin Fisher, he uses LIDAR, which is like basically a laser scanning, which creates a 3D model in order to make a virtual reality version of his site. Like I've, I've put on the I put on the virtual reality goggles. It's really cool. Wait, that slaps. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. There's there's lots of people doing really interesting and like innovative things in archaeology. Would you would you and describe their work, Allison, as groundbreaking? <laughs> How long were you putting off ma- making that joke? <laughs> Only like 10 seconds it popped into my head. Anyway, <laughs> no, for sure. Oh my god, thing. that was and, atrocious. Like listen, anybody who's had tenure for more than 15 or 20 years is maybe like not 100% to be trusted, but there's lots of young innovative people working in the field of archaeology and especially even and perhaps especially like prehistorical like stone age shit because we have no way to access it without trying out new methods to find out more information. Like, there's no, the stone is not going to yield to, like, just interpretive methods. We have to be trying new technological methods. Yeah. And so people are. They're working on this site actively. So actually, I need to go on a rant about Graham Hancock and his obsession with GPR. Oh, yeah, please, pop off. So, GPR is ground-penetrating radar. Graham Hancock, in and this was actually in some of the other episodes I watched, he loves GPR. He loves being like, this GPR survey shows that actually this site is enormous. And it's like, yes, Graham Hancock, this is true. However, that being said, he presents, and it's the same thing with dating, right? He presents GPR as a ground penetrating radar. Basically what it does is it sends radar signals down into the ground. And when those signals bounce off of things, they like bounce off of different materials in different ways. And so you can, if there's, this works with stone, you can see essentially, quote unquote, see a plan of architecture like under the ground. But here's the thing, is like any of the stuff we've talked about, this is not a perfect science. It only works with stone. And I'm not 100% sure it might actually only work with certain types of stone. It has a sort of maximum effective depth, which I think is maybe something like 
two meters. It's not very deep. And also, like, he goes on and on about, like, oh, we carbon dated the stones. And he talks a lot about, like, the age of the stones being super significant and stuff. And it's like, but you've openly admitted that there's a bunch of parts of this site that we don't have access to because it's fucking massive and it's under the ground. And so here's the thing is I also think this is essentially implying that archaeologists are like, archaeologists haven't explored this whole site. And you know why we haven't explored the site is because it costs a lot of fucking money. And instead of money going towards research and excavation, it's going towards this fucking piece of shit. Yeah, this dude made I don't I don't know how much money this dude made to make this show. But um, the amount of money that got poured into making this show would surely have ed- would surely have funded the dig at Gobekli Tepe for like at least a year, based on what I understand yeah. to be the truth about Netflix budgets. So maybe this man should shut the fuck up and literally put his money where his mouth is. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing. And here's the other thing about GPR: is GPR even if you have sort of like what you would you're like okay i think the conditions here are good for gpr you have to excavate it yeah to see if like the gpr is a guide and you can say hey it looks like there's more of this stuff under the ground but you can't say 100 percent this is definitely one of these things under the ground and we know it 100 percent for sure because that's not how this works it just it just makes me like very upset because archaeology is really expensive and it takes a long time and people don't know how how much money it takes to excavate how small of a part of a site like yeah excavation done properly is really really slow really time consuming if you're trying to do something like carbon dating you have to be really really careful because it's really hard to properly collect carbon samples this is something that i also didn't even mention either this stuff is so easily contaminated you touch it with your finger samples done because you have your cells you've got your cells your organic cells on this organic material that you're using to date right so that's the thing is is, and then you think of the money you have to use to do the carbon dating like it's it's just i don't know it's just really upsetting and i'm mad (laughs) yeah we're both fucking mad Speaking of being mad, um, I'm going to transition to talk about something else, which I mentioned a couple minutes ago, which is that this dude is so fucking Christian. So to move forward <laughs> a little bit. And and so I'm going to address a couple of things. He So he starts talking about the carvings on the stones, and then he talks about the moving of the blocks. He's like, oh, we don't know how they lifted the blocks. Bitch, we also don't know how they lifted the blocks at Stonehenge. This is not a new question no, it's a real no. fucking problem. We don't know. It's it was hard, but they clearly did it somehow. The the last time, as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong at this point, there's still questions about how people built the pyramids. Yeah, we don't fucking know. Woo! The archaeologists don't have answers, bro. No shit. <laughs> We'd love it if you offered some. <laughs> Here's the thing, too, is like, for example, we didn't know the recipe for Roman concrete until like four years ago. Oh, did they finally figure that out? They, they did figure that out. Wow, yeah. good for them. But Roman concrete is so dope. It was so strong and so great. And people spent years trying to figure out how, why is their concrete so great? Like, what was their concrete recipe? All that to say is, like, we don't know ever how ancient peoples did everything. Like, I think the two, the problem here is that 
we've quote unquote framed ourselves as an ad advanced civilization and therefore we must know how this stuff works, right? There's no way that an ancient people could have ha could have this technological skill that we don't have because we're more advanced. Yeah, which is like, no, shut the fuck up. Anyways, and then, and then he talks about the art and he's like, ooh, these like, he refers to them as unsophisticated hunter-gatherers living in mud huts when he's talking about how, like, it's so bizarre that they could make all of this fantastical, like, stylized animal art, and it's really beautiful and stuff. And then he, and I'll say, I'm going to skip ahead here, he, he says something about how he refers to the animal carvings as, quote, a Noah's Ark in stone, which I was like, okay, first I saw of all, that. I literally, do, do you want to hear my note for that? Yes, I do. Quote, unquote, Noah's Ark in stone. Arrow, this is going nowhere good. Yeah, I I just... And I thought of you, and I was like, ah, yes, the Christianity has arrived. Yeah, I mean, okay, look, first of all, we're t approximately 10,000... Well, we're approximately 9,000 years pre the, like, earliest biblical text. So shut the fuck up. No, it's not. Um, And second of all, people have been making art forever. <laughs> and they have been making art of animals for fucking ever. Like, I I am currently looking at, I, I mentioned this earlier, I am currently looking at the fucking Wikipedia page for uh, cave painting. And on this thing, there is a fucking photo of a, a painting on a wall of a cave in France, uh, Chauvet Cave, from 30,000 years ago. So... Uh, what, 20,000 years before, or, uh, yeah, approximately 20,000 years pre-Gobekli Tepe. And it's beautiful, and it's super realistic looking. People yeah. have been painting it animals forever. It's art, it's art. Bro, it's art. Sometimes human beings make art. I think the thing, too, is that carving stuff into stone is really hard. Yeah, like, sometimes stuff is stylized, but also it's just hard to carve things into stone. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, re it's really funny if you look at, um, with the sort of spread of the Roman Empire and the, like, trickling of sort of um, Roman styles of art elsewhere, you see people trying to imitate, for example, like, like Roman relief carvings and... The, the British examples are really fucking funny because they're not done very well because that's a hard skill how to learn. Yeah. Like those beautiful, like realistic stone carvings are really, really difficult to do and they require certain materials. So like, yeah, partly, you know, partly some there's stylization and partly it's just it's like it's hard. Yeah. Carving in stone is hard. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Well, okay, so he talks about this later. I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and I'll backtrack in a second. But um, he says, quote, Usually the more we practice something, the better we get at it. We assume that ancient cultures must have worked the same way, improving their skills over time. And he talks about how the largest and most, like, well-decorated of the enclosures is also the oldest one. And it's like, first of all, see again that only, like, 10% of this site is excavated. So actually, the... The enclosures that are still in the hill might be way older and shittier looking. You don't know. But also, like, why would you assume that they haven't practiced? Just because you don't yeah. have it doesn't mean that it didn't exist. And also that why would you assume that they wouldn't just be careful when, as, you know, Allison, you were just saying, like, this is hard 
and it's expensive. Like, how many fucking big-ass blocks of stone have you quarried? Do you want to go quarry another one? No. So you're going to take your time and do it right the first time. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems like a weird thing to be like, there's no way that anybody could be good, good at this the first time. It's like, maybe, but also you don't yeah. know that it's the first time. And also, like, weird flex, bro. Yeah, and I mean, here's the thing, too, is because he's like, oh, like, there's no way people could do things worse over time. But, I mean, here's the thing, right? If you look at, I don't know, you go to friggin' France and you've got Notre Dame, but then, I don't know, you have a church from the 19th century or something nearby, and you're like, wait, but, like, Notre Dame is so much nicer than this little 19th century church. How is that possible? Yeah. And it's like... Styles change over time. There are fluctuations in wealth over time. Like, it's just an inane, it's like a weird inane point that doesn't really stand up to even one second of scrutiny. No, it, it doesn't. It I, I mean, yeah, nothing he says stands up to one second of scrutiny. Well, yeah, but that one in particular really got me as like, ooh, the carvings are good, so there's no way that a hunter-gatherer could have made it. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, well, he does these really strange rhetorical things that are contradictory. And maybe if you're not sort of looking for it, you might not notice it. But it's really, yeah, because he does a thing where he's like, oh, well, they were, nobody could have possibly gotten so good at this right away. But then he's like, then he's like, oh, but we haven't excavated everything. There's so much more of the site. And I'm like, yeah. Bro, what? What You just contradicted yourself. But also, then, that really begs the question. It's like, okay, well, then in theory, we sh still should have somebody practicing it somewhere, right? Like, we should have the examples of the lost civilization, like, practicing their carvings or what. And, like, like, you could also say, for example, that children are not instant, or, like, nobody is instantly good at something when they're first taught it. So... Why, just because even if they were taught the skill, how did they get instantly good at it? I really want, I, I want somebody to give him a piece of obsidian, like, here, make a stone tool. Make, make a tool made by the primitive hunter-gatherers. Yeah, literally. The, pr the primitive hunter, make a stone tool. And that's another thing that I have to say, too, about this. As well, this is an early example of monumental architecture. People have been working with stone for literally millions of years literally pre-people yeah. being people yeah pre-homo sapiens there were stone tools and also lithic technology it's it's hard it's it's really hard to make a stone tool like if we're going by what quote-unquote primitive is based on skill stone tools aren't in any way primitive they're really they're really difficult to make no and there's some examples people people get so fucking excited when a crow uses a stick to get a treat like, using <laughs> tools at all is not primitive. That is already significantly advanced. So, what the, like, he uses the word advanced so much, talking about, like, ooh, this like, this, like, Ice Age civilization that was so advanced and taught this technology. And it's like, what do you mean by advanced? Like, what stage of technology are you thinking of when you say advanced? Because it can't have been metalworking. Or we would have traces. And if it's stoneworking, then why is the evidence that you have, like, still considered the work of primitive people if, if it's not... Like, I... Anyways. He contradicts himself. Yeah. He goes around in these fucking circles. Anyways. 
Yeah. So we have stone tools that are probably like the sort of earliest reported stone tools. I don't know. There's probably debate about this because there's debate about anything. But anyway, the, the oldest sort of reported stone tools are 3.3 million years old. Holy These fuck. are probably Australopithecines, like in that sort of genus of hominids. So there, yeah, we have stone tools that are several million years old that predate the genus Homo. Yeah. You know what? And good for them. Hominids know how to use stone. Like, the, I... Yeah. The idea that no hominid could have figured out how to work stone even on a massive scale without being taught by somebody is batshit. Yes. Again, the aliens would make more sense because it's like, okay, well, the aliens came down and left and they left left no trace aside from all of the magical pyramids or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Where did the mysterious civilization go? Where did, did they all, go? Where did, did they fucking, fucking like, go? Did, did Ultron dissolve them when he snapped his fingers? Sorry, not Ultron. Whatever the fuck. Which <laughs> uh, one was it? Thanos? Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No, but truly, like, it's a good fucking question. And he really does not get into it at all. And, and it was making me insane throughout the entire episode. Yeah, I'm like, I mean, at least just tell me something yeah but he can't like, but he just can't tell me he where doesn't... you think they went i don't i don't care if it's true just give me some sort of explanation yeah so speaking of traces being destroyed so the next thing that he moves on to and i'm gonna backtrack a little bit from when he talks about like oh we get better at things over time back towards where he said the fucking noise arc thing so he starts talking about the age of the different enclosures as lead up to this like don't we usually get better at things over time? Which And so what he says as part of this is that, yeah, so the biggest and most good-looking-to-the-modern eye of the enclosures is the oldest. And one of the things that he says about it is, quote, instead of updating the building they already had, they built new enclosures, which is true. But so here's what I have to say about that. Um, first of all, literally one minute ago, Hancock was talking about how inexplicable it was that they were able to move the pieces at all or carve them or anything like that. So why is it more plausible that they could or would, if they have significant ritual use, take apart the old ones than that they build an addition? I I don't know, man. Yeah, like, that's this is the thing. And so the other <laughs> thing he says is, and also they slightly rotate the alignment every time, which I which to me begs the question, so what now? It's weird that they're not super exact. Like, one minute ago, it was weird that they're, oh, they're so tightly aligned. But now it's like, wait, so now it's weird that they were not precisely calculated? I think the idea is that, like, the stars move or something over well, time. Well, no, I know. And it's this, like, astronomy thing where it's like, oh, they were pointing towards specific stars. And I was like, okay, well, fair enough. So where was Sirius 11,000 yeah. years ago? Because that's what he says that it's pointing towards. And he, in fact, demonstrates on screen that we have technology that will allow us to calculate the specific alignment of stars during certain periods. But he does not apply that to this situation to prove the point that these were pointing towards the star Sirius. He doesn't even make that claim. He just says that it could be. That bit where he's showing the iPad is just so funny to me. He's like, advanced technology. And it's like, this is a computer program, buddy. Yeah, we'll we'll t we'll get there. We'll get to the stars. <laughs> let's let's not let's not get too far off track because I want to at least somewhat. So anyway, so he talks about that they built new things, 
And then he says, quote, okay, so this is one of these things that I was like, hmm, quote, it's not a thing if you're if you're a hunter-gatherer and just wake up one morning and decide, oh, I'm going to build the largest megalithic site that will ever be seen in the world. Those are the words that he says. I will first point out that shout out as always to the Netflix subtitles for sucking shit. And in fact, in in this case, actively obscuring how obscenely ridiculous this statement is because the subtitle omits that will ever be seen. The subtitle just oh reads God. the largest megalithic site in the world, which is not what oh he says. God. What he says is the largest megalithic site that will ever be seen in the world, which is an insane statement. Like, okay. Yeah, but it's also like, what? how are you, if you're saying that it's a megalith, like, what are we? There, there may not be bigger sites, but there are definitely bigger megaliths. Anyways, the other thing is also, obviously, no fucking hunter-gatherer, just any, no, first of all, no one hunter-gatherer, but also not even a group of them, quote, just woke up one morning and decide to build this site. It probably had some, it surely had some kind of purpose. And in fact, somebody probably like paid for it in some way because, you know, humans have economies of things of various kinds. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't like an economy in the way that we think about it or nobody paid for it in the way that we think about it today. But like, I think the idea actually with this site is because this is still sort of like pretty firmly in this quote unquote egalitarian society. Is it essentially like everybody was working together to build the site more or less like that's kind well, of the, sure but like the the idea yeah no and i mean but but what i mean by somebody paid for it is that like the community came together and people were you know probably getting like fed by their community it, yeah thanks to yeah. them working on the site because you know if they were working on the site they weren't farming or whatever like people had to come together and decide communally whether we think of that in terms of like, oh, people were getting compensated for their labor or, oh, it was a communal decision to come together to build this thing or fucking whatever, however you want to think about it. That like, this was not somebody woke up one morning and decided to build this site. Like, no, this was a considered communal decision. This probably took years to build. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... And he says it himself, like, oh, it's so ridiculous that anybody would think this. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is ridiculous. Why are you framing it this way? So what's the point? Like, nobody thinks that. I mean, he's trying to say that that's what archaeologists think. Yeah, which, like, we don't. If people don't know anything about archaeology, well, this guy, the his rhetoric, the way he frames things is convincing like basically he's selling bullshit but he sells his bullshit really really well yeah he's like very authoritative he's very he looks like while he positions himself as anti-authority he does actually sort of play on people's biases of what authoritative look like what looks like right like he's he has a sort of very like posh british accent he you know dresses nightly nicely he's this older white man so he he like exudes authority so it's easy for him to say bullshit and for people to just believe it yeah <laughs> okay so he says that and then he says all of the shit about like oh like these there's no way that they were that they like quote succeeded so brilliantly at building with megaliths at their very first attempt which is we've talked about that like they didn't probably um, but if they did, it's because they took a long time and they did it right the first time because materials and labor were, you know, they came at a hard cost when life was is so marginal, you know. Anyway, 
Um, and then he's like, ah, yes, it's time to consider the possibility that the megaliths are the legacy of, quote, a precociously advanced lost civilization of prehistory. So he gets into his shit. He makes a comment about how, oh, academic scholars have gotten locked into this framework and that archaeologists, quote, find it offensive to suggest that, you know, this is some other thing. And it's like, yeah, we do, because you're wrong and also racist. Allison, do you find it offensive that somebody would suggest that there might be another explanation for how this site came to be than what you were taught in school? No, I find it offensive that this man is racist. Yeah, there we go. Onward. That's <laughs> point proved. I find it, I that he's racist and he uses archaeologists' uh, archeo, uh, hard work and years of dedication and then just insults us repeatedly. Yeah, for. yeah. And, and was paid millions of dollars to use our work and then insult us repeatedly for like eight hours. So, yep. you know, I'm fine. I'm not mad. I like, I like, I saw this Twitter thread where somebody was like, I'm not mad at Graham Hancock. It was some, somebody who had like, otherwise, like who had a very like good Twitter thread, but it started with like, I'm not mad at Graham Hancock. And I'm like, I am mad at Graham Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to like pretend I'm not mad at Graham Hancock because I am mad at Graham Hancock for a number of reasons. Yeah. And then he says a bunch of bullshit. He refers to Gobekli Tepe as, quote, more ambitious than the products of hunter-gatherer civilizations at the end of the Ice Age, I guess. I don't really, I didn't really understand what he meant by more ambitious. It's just like, it's just another way to say advanced, essentially, because he's said advanced a yeah. number of times. Um, and then he talks about there being a bunch more in the hill. So that's when we get the ground penetrating radar stuff. And he's like, and so this is the point at which I was like, oh, so all of the shit about how over 1100 years, the style significantly changed between the four enclosures that we do have is probably bunk because there's a bunch more that we haven't excavated. And it's hard to make a claim about developments in style without examining all of the stuff we have to know what the true chronology is. Um, and also the claim that they quote nailed it the first time might like also be bunk because it's entirely plausible that some of the ones in the hill are way older and much shittier. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, he says, quote, no prior skills, no prior knowledge, no prior background in working with stone. And they create something like Gobleke Tepe. <laughs> okay, so first of all, it was built over a span of, like, a thousand years. But second of all, people, like, you talked about this, Allison. People have been making stone tools and working with stones since we were apes in caves. <laughs> no prior background in working with stone? Bitch! <laughs> you know, millions of years pre-human ancestors. No background. Okay, and so then he says, quote, There has to be a long history behind it, and that history is missing. In my notes, I have a sub-bullet that reads, yes. And then there is a sub-bullet to that sub-bullet that reads, It has to be a lost, quote, It has to be a lost civilization that taught their skills to hunter-gatherers. And there's a sub-bullet to that sub-sub-bullet that reads, <laughs> no. <laughs> like... It's the thing is that his initial statements are misleading because he says things that are like, yeah, like there is a long history behind this site that we don't have access to. You're right. But 
The answer is not, there was a lost Ice Age civilization that taught their skills to hunter-gatherers. <laughs> Where the fuck did you get that from? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's I think it's worth noting here, too, that, like, this is, whether or not he actually believes any of this stuff is irrelevant. Like, this man is a grifter. He's like Alex Jones. He do be griftin'. Oh, yeah. This is a grift. I, so <laughs> I think this is a good time to mention that this man has been interviewed on the Joe Rogan podcast multiple times. And in fact, Joe Rogan interviews him on this show. Oh, he keeps bringing, I don't think he did it on this episode, but in the like two episodes I watched, he just kept bringing like Joe Rogan. Like he kept like showing clips of Joe Rogan. And I'm like, I don't, this is not the, the like, this is not doing you favors, sir. Not to us, but it is to his target audience. Which is Joe Rogan's audience. But yeah, when I say he's a Alex Jones-style grifter, he is an Alex Jones-style grifter. Yeah. He exists to make people angry. Also, I'm going to say this again at the end. Don't watch this show. Do not watch this show. I regret watching even one episode of this show. He does not deserve your views. Don't fucking watch this show. Go read articles about how bad it is. Don't watch it. He doesn't deserve yeah. any more money from Netflix. I mean, he might still get more money from Netflix because by all accounts, the reason he got this show is because his son works for Netflix. What? Oh, oh Allison, we'll get to that. Oh, no. Anyway, so, okay. So after this bullshit about like, ooh, there's all this mystery about how it even got built. He turns to talking about another site that is nearby also giant. It's called um, Karahan Tepe. And it is, uh, by all, according to the show, um, nobody has ever, no outside, like nobody has ever been allowed in with a film crew. And I'm pissed as hell that this fucking guy got the first shot at filming this site. It's beautiful. It's a really interesting site. Yeah, and it's pre it's pretty clearly still being excavated. Like, I mean, they tell you this, but you look at the site and it's like, from if you're an archaeologist you can see oh okay there's a trench over there that they're building that they're excavating there's a trench there you can see like part way through the ex like where they're part way through excavation yeah it's it's really actively being worked on gobekli tepe doesn't seem to be in the same way that because they've got this like construction around it that protects it so it doesn't seem like they're actively working on gobekli tepe at least not the main enclosures that are kind of there that was the sense that i got yeah. from looking at it um, but this site is really actively being looked at. Um, it's about the same age as Gobekli Tepe, um, maybe even older, but it hasn't been carbon dated or anything yet as far as I could tell from the way they were talking about it. And the carvings, quote, the carvings are worse, which I was like, oh, yeah? Oh, so things that are older, they look worse. They have been carving <laughs> stone before Gobekli Tepe, and it looked worse. So maybe they didn't pull their stone carving skills out of their fucking asses. Holy shit. He, he disproved his whole argument by pointing that out. Yeah. And then he says, quote, we do see robed figures. Could they represent the site's true architects? I was like, um, yeah, the Stone Age hunter-gatherers who built the site, shithead. That was when my soul left my body. <laughs> yeah. But like also... So based on the images shown here, first of all, I couldn't tell if the two images that he shows of the, quote, robed figures are actually two different figures. They're shot from totally different angles. So it might actually be the same one because they look very similar. It's quite possible that they are two different ones and they just look similar. But like, I, I couldn't tell. Yeah. They're shot from completely different angles. It's, it's impossible to tell. And also based on what's shown, 
To call it a robed figure is a significant stretch. Yeah. Like, you really have to look at that fucking thing. It's a it's a stick figure. It doesn't even have a head. It's like, like the head is projected on in the image on the screen. I, I might go back and grab a screenshot of that for Twitter because it was silly. Like, it's basically, it's like a triangle with, like, two arms and two legs sticking out of it. And the triangle has, like, little dots carved into it. Yeah, it's like, it's not like a, <laughs> it's not like a line figure. It's like, um, it's like a pockmarked shape. So it's very hard to see or determine what the fuck it is. Anyways. And so, yeah, a figure, maybe, yes. To call it a robed figure is strong. And then he says, there are ten pillars resembling phalluses. <laughs> How did I miss that? Oh, I wrote a sub bullet that just reads in all caps, thanks, Freud. (laughs) It's like they don't look more like phalluses than any of the other pillars that we've looked at. Why would you even say that? (laughs) So here's the thing. I am I am of the strong opinion that it is at very least a fundamental aspect of at least peoples of European descent to draw dicks on things because the Romans also drew dicks on things. So I believe that people that it is, it has been a fundamental aspect of the human condition for a long time. If I'm going to generalize about human society, this is the one thing I will generalize. We like drawing dicks on things. Sometimes we draw tits. This is a stretch. Anyway, yeah, it's just like it's just like a wild stab that also then goes nowhere. And also speaking of wild unsubstantiated stabs that go nowhere, almost the immediate next thing is he's talking about this curved channel that has been carved in that seems positioned to like pour liquid of some kind down into the chamber. And he says that it's to direct, quote, water or possibly blood. <laughs> I wrote, why is blood being poured all of a sudden? Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's my note. I was like, wait, this came out of left field. He does not say anything about any kind of animal or I assume implicitly human sacrifice. Like, I think that's what he's getting at. But he literally does. The word sacrifice does not get used. The word religion or ritual does not even really get used to talk about what's going on here. There's literally no reason to mention blood. There's no there's clearly no evidence. Like, it's it's a completely pointless stab interpretive stab out into the fucking black for no reason like what are you what are you talking about here's the thing is that i think it's like it's one of these things where it's like ah yes the primitive hunter gatherers well what do primitives do they sacrifice things and pour blood as part of rituals and blah 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 right like i think that's you know where this is coming from it's it's part of that quote-unquote primitive framing but he literally doesn't say anything else about it oh yeah no no it's so stupid like if you were gonna get into that and talk about potential rituals that you imagine being the operative word that might have happened here like that would be one thing but it's literally like there's nothing but that's in the that's in the voiceover right that he says that yes Yeah, because the thing is, is it's worth noting here that he's with the guy who excavates the site. So he's not just going to be like randomly like blood might have came over, came out of there, like beside this man who excavates the site. Yeah. And so I will say, so he's walking around with this Turkish archaeologist whose name I, to be totally honest, I didn't write down. But frankly, I'm not sure that either of the people like the scholars who were in this would necessarily want to be associated by name with this product now that it's clear how bad the final product is 
I have a friend who and uh, a program mate, like a, a classmate in my program who is Turkish and like knows of this guy and has said that this guy's pretty legit. So I'm reasonably sure on the basis of this and a couple of other pieces of like information that have come out about other scholars and, and archaeologists that were interviewed on this show that they were significantly edited to skew the kind of interviews that they gave. So it's quite possible that this dude is not remotely on board with this, with Hancock's shit. Yeah. It's, it's worth, it's worth noting this as well. that The Graham Hancock does this with another archeologist in another episode where like, it's the guy who is responsible for excavating a site. So is that, is that the Mexico episode? Yeah, that's the Mexico Okay, so episode. here's so here's what I'll say. I, and you know what? I'll just talk about this now. So I read an article that was an interview with um, a guy. I, I was literally trying to, I had looked in a little bit to this guy and I was like, why is this guy on this documentary? And I couldn't find anything. So I'm glad you have something because I like looked him up and I was like, oh, this, this guy is legit. He's from University of Calgary. Like I looked at his sort of like, I looked at his publication history, like- uh, okay, so this is from a Slate article, which we'll link in the show notes, um, and it's a big chunk of it is an interview with this guy named John Hoops, who has been very vocal on Twitter and so on, um, and he's written his own, John Hoops, he's, he's written his own blog posts about it and so on and so forth, but he says at one point, uh, so the interviewer asks about um, Hancock's like animosity towards the mainstream and mainstream archaeology, um, and in response, one of the things that Hoops says is, Quote, something else that I noticed is that in the second episode, there's an archaeologist named Jeffrey McCafferty, the one who gives Graham Hancock a tour of the Cholula Pyramid in Mexico. Jeff is a former graduate student of mine. I've known him since 1988. He's an amazing archaeologist, and Jeff has, for as long as I've known him, for over 30 years, been absolutely passionate about Cholula. If you pay careful attention to how they edited what he was saying in the second episode, his enthusiasm for Cholula is actually kind of shifted into what seems like an enthusiasm for what Hancock is saying. Yeah. And I, I, cause I noticed that episode and I, I, I was, cause I, yeah, cause I watched that episode and I was like, this is very odd because yeah, I looked it up and I'm like, this guy is responsible for the site. He's been excavating this site for 20 years or something. He's been responsible for the site for a very long time. And it's very odd because Graham Hancock goes in and is like, scholars refuse to think that this is the truth about this site. And then he interviews this guy who, like, is responsible for the site and has done all of the yeah. recent publication on the site. Yeah. And so I will say, I don't know, I feel like, like, Graham Hancock must have done something to convince these people to come on the show because... Graham Hancock is well known as a pseudo-archaeology grifter. This man has been pseudo-archaeology grifting since like the 80s or something. So it's kind of sad because it, it was an irresponsible decision for these people to go on the show, I think, because they sh- should know that Graham Hancock has this history. I'm sure it was sold to them as something else. Like, I'm sure it was sold to them as something else. And I'm sure it was edited out of context I don't doubt that. Like, again, yeah, with this Turkish guy, like, they seem like otherwise they do good work. But I think also they should have, regardless of what it was sold as, like, they should have known better than to associate it all with Graham Hancock. I'll say the same thing was done to um, Katja Stroud, who is a senior curator at at Heritage Malta. This is uh, reported in a Times of Malta article where she says... 
quote, Katja Stroud said in a Facebook post that her appearance in the episode does not necessarily mean she agrees with the content of the show. Quote from Stroud, it is amazing how local media prioritize what is said by foreign experts at the expert of ignoring local archaeologists and curators. Not all marketing is good marketing. Further quote, being heavily edited and quoted out of context further supports this point. So it seems to me that some of, at least in her case, it seems like what she wanted was some attention, some eyes on her site. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was probably true for all of these people. Yeah, they just want, like, they're passionate about these sites. They want eyes on, they want excitement, they want funding. They want fucking funding. And the way to get Mm -hmm. that is for the public to be interested so that you can write a fucking grant proposal that says, look, the public is interested. And that's not what they got. They got this pseudo-archaeological conspiracy theory bullshit. Yeah. And I mean, there's this great Dan Olson video called I Have No Idea How I Ended Up in That Stupid Geocentrism Documentary, which is, is it's about a similar thing where there's this geocentrism is like the centrism is the conspiracy theory that the Earth is the center of the universe. There's these like legitimate physicists who ended up in this documentary and they're like, we were sold this as something different. And then they edited these legitimate scientists to make it sound like they agreed yeah. with this like fucking wacko grifter geocentrist man. So yeah, like I, yeah. I don't doubt that that's what happened here. Again, I I do question the decision because Graham Hancock do be grifting and has been grifting for a long time but I can I can also see like why that decision was made yeah because yeah it's a shame like this is good like these people are all clearly doing they're good doing good scholarship they're doing they have these really interesting sites and then of course the only way to get attention is to go on this fucking show like that's really sad (laughs) yeah so to direct back to what is going on at the show at this point so he's walking around the site with this Turkish Turkish archaeologist and they end up looking at this, like, head, this this very clear, like, human head that's been carved out of the bedrock there. And how uh, even the Turkish archaeologist said it's it's kind of, like, serpent-like in the way that it, it's got this, like, long, weird neck. And, and yeah, like, it's, it's, it is very, it's very strange and interesting. I believe the archaeologist is the one who refers to it as maybe being, like, a human-headed snake, which my understanding is, like, a yeah. pretty common artistic motif like it's a thing i have no fucking clue man i i i don't know i feel like that exists in some world mythology but like also like yeah people love to put serpents on shit they're cool but then we cut to hancock talking about how ooh, he felt like this site was so sinister the like sinister serpentine head of the of the like snake man and he talks about how it's like ooh it scared him so much and like it really made him nervous and it felt like a like a like a fucking dark place or whatever i don't think those are the words that he used but i was like man okay so you got nervous looking at this thing so here's what i've written down and i said i don't think there's actually that it's actually necessarily bad methodologically to use your emotional reaction as an interpretation of art mm. Because that's part of what we do when we, like, look at, I mean, I'm not an art historian, but if you're trying to interpret art, like, obviously you're looking at, like, a person's, like, facial expressions. Like, part of that act of interpretation is having an emotional response. And, like, there's definitely this sort of, um, this desire to reject the use of any sort of emotion in um, any sort of social science. Yeah. Like, the, the, like this has been a long thing in archaeology about, like, you know, the idea that you can do sort of pure scientific archaeology without human bias. And, of course, when you're studying human beings, like, no, there's going to be human bias. Yeah. So I don't, like, 
necessarily disagree with like using that emotional reaction. But then what he says is like, this indicates this is a warning from the peoples of the past to us. Like that's where he takes his, it's like, how did you get from A to B here? You're like, oh, this thing looks scary. So it means it's a warning from this mysterious people of the past. Yeah. And it, it was like, oh, okay. It's just a big leap. And like, I also think that it's fair to point out that he specifically brings up how sinister the site feels in the context of the snake imagery, which is like, once again, the Christianity jumped out. Yeah. J- J- Julia's like, Hulk moment is um, her Hulk trigger are the words Judeo-Christian. And whenever I see something that says Judeo-Christian, I like sh- send her a photo now. And every- anytime I see something like that, like after knowing Julia for a while, like I have the, the like Christianity alarm goes off in my head, like much more readily than it used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's because I'm a grumpy Jew, like at all times. Um, anyways. So yeah. And, and basically like, I don't know. I was just looking at it and I like I was just listening to him talk about this and I was like, yes, I think you're right, Allison. Like the affective is a very useful tool for interpretation and and we shouldn't ignore affective reactions. Sometimes even it's important to acknowledge them and and even to incorporate them into scholarship. Um, There's a big affective turn in, in queer theory and stuff like that, which is like I think I think it's important. But I also think that we need to use our affective reactions to interrogate our cultural biases. Mm, Yeah. You know, like, I think it's fine to look at a snake and go, oh, snake scary or like snake imagery and go, oh, this is like a warning of some like sinister evil. And then to think to ourselves, well, this makes me nervous and it makes me think of like a sinister vibe. I'm using the word sinister because it's the one that he uses, but like, oh, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like bad and scary. It's a warning of like something bad that has happened or that will happen. And then to think to ourselves, well, why do we so directly associate that with snakes? Like, it's an extremely cultural thing. In Mm -hmm. ancient Greece, for example, snakes were associated with um, the god Asclepius, who was a god of healing. So, yeah, like we like it's it's just like it's a very specific thing. And I'm not saying it's invalid, but it's definitely culturally specific. So, you know, And I mean, to, to clarify about the sort of Christianity thing, like the, the idea about this is essentially to to clarify. So I just I want to clarify so people don't think like I'm like an angry atheist who hates all religion. <laughs> yeah. The, the the idea of is is like when we're referring to something when it's like, oh, the Christianity alarm bells going off. That's basically it's like, OK, Christianity is being used as the overall framework to interpret everything. Because we sort of lived in a in a Christian based culture, even if, you know, a lot of us sort of lived in countries that are now like, quote unquote, secular, like a lot of our our ideas are sort of Christianity is woven into the fabric of like yes. our consciousness. So when you see snake equals bad, like there's like a, a biblical thing going on there. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know, but I also do not believe that Christianity is the only, like, Christian culture is the only culture to associate snakes with, like, bad stuff. I'm sure that there are other cultures for whom that is the case. But coming from a white British man, it is surely coming from cultural Christianity. Like, that is where that is coming from. So in this case, I feel quite confident in saying that that is what's going on there. I'm not saying that, that, that it is necessarily the case and that, to associate snakes with evil automatically makes you Christian. But coming from this dude, and frankly from anybody who's 
as embedded in like kind of white quote unquote Western culture as this guy is, but also as probably all of his viewers are, that is going to be the association. Okay. So uh, <laughs> he finishes up by talking talking about Karahan Tepe by saying there's no evidence of farming at the site. Great. Onward. He talks about the theory, uh, how the quote theory um, is that agriculture came before monumental sites, which, as we have already discussed, is not the current theory. Um, and that it's pretty, and like we have talked about this, I think it was pretty common even for nomadic cultures to have certain places that they returned to on a regular basis. So there was a lot of use even for more nomadic or, or less like agriculturally fixated um, societies to have to build monumental sites because they were representative of gathering, like central gathering places where people might return to annually or on a like cycle. Yeah. So here's the thing too, is I forget actually where he mentions this. I think it was, I think it was around here. Is it? He's like, <laughs> I just have a note here that may, this man will not stop abusing GPR. Um, Cause there's also this GPR chamber situation at uh, Karahan Tepe. Yeah. And then he says, Farming springs up around it, so all around it at the same time, which is confusing because I think earlier he was like, this is before farming. And I'm like, OK, I don't quite quite. I don't know. I don't know what this is. The thing is, it's like his actual timeline here is, is never clear. Oh, yeah. He says he says, quote, at the same time it was being built, agriculture appears all around it, which. Yeah, I mean, yeah. OK, I think both. I think it's fair to say that both of these sites seem to come based on his the way he presents it. And also based on the evidence, these sites seem to have been built just pre-agricultural, which to me kind of suggests that the building of monumental ritual sites is actually what motivates people to settle down in certain places and begin farming there rather than the other way around. Well, so this is this is a huge argument. Oh, OK, OK. Never mind. Ignore I said anything. <laughs> you don't want to touch how did farming develop with a 10 foot oh, pole. Oh, Christ. All right. Um, <laughs> I mean, this guy does, so, but also. Needless to say, everybody's arguing about it. That's a possible theory. There are lots of possible theories. Like, it's a complicated subject. But also to say, the way he frames this, it's the same thing with the stone monuments. Is He's like, how did this stuff, farming just spring up out of nowhere? And it's like, but we know that it didn't. Like, I was just, I was just looking at this paper where they were talking about sort of like, A, like sort of like, looking at the appearance of domesticates is, well, you actually see with, for example, some grains, you see the percentage of the domesticates increase. So you'll see some grains that have the same genome as a domesticate, but that'll only be 30% of the crop. And then 70% of the like seeds that you find in this will then be these like wild varieties. So you can see the process of domestication. Um, But also in this article, they were mentioning that there's this sort of utilization, the the taking advantage of animal and plant resources in in like ways similar to agriculture that predates the actual like domestication of plants and animals. Mm. So people coming back to the same spots to harvest the same, yeah, like harvest the same, and even maybe like planting some seeds. Um, like finding out, okay, like where are these resources and coming back to them and maybe doing some planting. So like this is a long process of going from hunting and gathering to starting to, you know, experiment, you know, like 
to start to maybe going more repeatedly to the same places and maybe doing some actual manipulation of plants and animals than to all the way to like like a completely domesticated cow or pig. Also, side note, I was thinking this when I was reading this paper. The people who domesticated pigs, that's fucking brave. Oh, Whores yeah. are nasty, nasty animals. Whores are so nasty. I the, mean, listen. Domesticated pigs will still fuck you up. Yeah. Like, th- those things are like 800 pounds. Like, why? How did this happen? Yeah, sometimes you think to yourself, why did, like, the Jews uh, forbid eating pork? And then you think to yourself, oh, because, first of all, they rolled around in shit all the time, so they were perceived as dirty. Um, but also, fucking with a pig could kill you. So... It's kind yeah. of logical that you would be like, don't fuck with the pig. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just feel like on the basic level of like, don't eat shit that will kill you. Pigs are pretty far up that list, actually. <laughs> and, anyway. And like, speaking of that, <laughs> like, so at this point, to go back to Mr. fucking Graham shithead, he talks about how, like, the these sites springing up and agriculture springing up around them, et cetera, whatever, however fucking whatever order that happened in, I'm not going to, I won't weigh in. Um, He refers to it as a transfer of technology, that somebody must have taught these skills to these people rather than that they developed in an organic way. But it's obvious that they developed in an organic way. We have tons of evidence that that was what happened. Well, here's the thing. And this is like one of the things where it's like, okay, we have pretty concrete scientific evidence of, okay, we have a change in the amount of domesticates over time. We have the appearance, the slow appearance of like, and continual change of the genome of the type of grain. Like, and it is more complicated. Like this, this paper that I read, it's, it's obviously more complicated. It's obviously still debate. But like this is, uh, there is traces of this process over thousands of years. This is not a thing that happened all of a sudden. And if this was a technology that was taught to people, you would expect there already be evidence of domesticates of plants or animals somewhere. But there are. So... <laughs> Uh, it just keeps coming back to the same issues that like you'd expect yeah. there to be evidence of this precursor that isn't. But there's no way that these primitive Stone Age hunter gatherers living in mud huts could possibly have figured out how to do things like it's that's just an assumption. There's no evidence that that was actually yeah. the case. And in fact, there's evidence of the opposite. But. Speaking of where did the previous people go, what he moves on to is, drumroll please, the flood! <laughs> oh, not the flood. Uh, the fucking flood. Okay, so he he talks about the flood myth. He gives a version of it. He, he sort of cites the, like, he cites, like, Gilgamesh, basically, and he talks about the Apkalu yeah. and... I but then the version that he tells is to me like quite biblical. I don't know. I mean, I actually am not familiar with the version of the flood myth in Gilgamesh, so I can't really speak to this. I I also don't know. I know nothing about Mesopotamian mythology. Um, yeah, so it's worth noting the epic the epic uh, the epic of Gilgamesh is old 
it's a really old Mesopotamian mythological text. I think it might be like the oldest narrative text. Yeah, it's old. It's, it's very old. It's very old. <laughs> like as in like 4,000 years old or something. I don't know the exact date, but it's like it's beginning of city states, beginning of writing sort of vibe. Like it's it's written in cuneiform and I think it's yeah, it's like dates from about 2100 BC. Oh, so I'm right on there. 4,000. Look at that. Big brain. Yeah, so it's it's she she old. Yeah, and so and you know, like there are some theories that the epic the Gilgamesh flood myth and the biblical flood myth look back to some kind of historical flood. Um I don't I I'll say that's not the most unbelievable theory I've ever heard of, not least because I mean the Mediterranean like Okay, so what I'm about to mention is five million years old, but there was a big fucking flood. The Mediterranean basin was at one point completely empty and dry, and it refilled, like, extremely rapidly. And there was a massive flood, and a bunch of shit happened. It's called the Zanclean Flood or the Zanclean Deluge. It's, like, crazy. It's a really fun, it's, like, a really fun thing to look at. You can find some, like, gifs of what it would have looked like and how fucking quickly the Mediterranean would have refilled. Um, it's batshit. So, like, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think there's a no reason. And and so floods in and around the Mediterranean because of, like, how weird the basin is and stuff like that. Like, I don't think it's entirely unreasonable to say, yeah, there probably was. There may well have been. Some, I won't say probably. But there may well have been some kind of cataclysmic flood at some point within, like, the ancestral memory of our earliest human precursors. And a bunch of them wrote stories about it. However, I will also say there might have been more minor floods and everyone was like, what if there was a big one? Like, it's a good story. <laughs> it's also it's also worth noting that, like, the Fertile Crescent is connected. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of trade and movement around the Fertile Crescent. And there's a lot of transfer of mythological figures and stories. Yeah, like this is the other thing is just because everybody wrote a flood myth doesn't mean that everybody came up with it separately. Somebody might have come up with it and then it got spread around. Like that is Yeah, and it's also it's also worth noting that flooding in an agricultural society that is built specifically around a river system, like the agriculture that would have happened in Mesopotamia or in Egypt, like flooding is really important. And if if there's like cuz in in Egypt the flood was, they used the rising of the river to actually irrigate their crops. Like, that was how they did their irrigation. There would be a per- period of the year where the, the waters would rise. Um, and so, like, when your livelihood and, like, existence is dependent on a river behaving a certain way, then obviously that's something you, that you would think about a lot. show up in your, in your mythology, yeah, right? Totally. Like, um, it's, yeah, the river is really central to these to people's lives when they're when they're you know they're they're dependent on the all of their agricultural land is all based around a river system and they're an agricultural society that's a much better more educated opinion than mine which is that i don't know i think it would be cool if we had some like ancestral memory of a fucked up flood but that's not very likely i just think it's not completely unreasonable 
What yeah. is completely unreasonable is the version of the story that um, Graham Hancock tells, which is that the gods made humanity to steward the land and animals, and then early humans were lazy and unruly and got super overpopulated, and so obviously we required an eco-fascist purge. And the <laughs> fucking overpopulation caused the flood, and the only way to solve overpopulation, as we know, is mass genocide of um, the people who are lesser. Uh, so there was a flood. <laughs> Uh, and then I've never heard to it as referred as an eco-fascist purge, but like you're right. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and then uh, came the seven sages, the Apkalu, and he specifically talks about Awanu, who is a half man, half fish dude from the sea. He comes out of the sea and he teaches quote agriculture, architecture, and knowledge of the stars. And Hancock talks about how quote the list of Oanu's teachings contains many advances supposedly invented at Gobekli Tepe, um, to which I said, "Yeah, because human advances are very frequently attributed to the gods. It's called an etiology." <laughs> oh my god, I couldn't remember for the word f for etiology again, and I tried googling, and it didn't work. <laughs> so thank you, because I was thinking about that, yep. and I I always forget the word for etiology. The word etiology when I'm anyway. Uh, at the time of recording, I'm editing the Doctor Who episode, and we had a conversation about it, with, about that specific word. Um, and neither of us could remember it at the time. But this time, I remembered it. Yeah, no, I didn't remember it. So he, and I'm just, I'm just going to finish summarizing this section, and then we can talk about it. So yeah. he talks about these, quote, civilizing heroes who come by boat. Civilizing. Yeah, he, he, he comes up with a number of Ugh. examples, um, not just from the Mediterranean. He talks, he also talks about Quetzalcoatl, um, who notably is a frequent uh, favorite of white supremacists because though he doesn't mention it in this show, Quetzalcoatl is described as having white skin. Oh. Yeah, which is, a, as I said, a favorite of white supremacists. And that these depictions of these, quote, civilizing heroes that come from over the sea are remarkably similar. Beards, big hats, robes, quote, robes and distinctive handbags. The handbags are weird. Yeah, that was weird. I, I will say, I, I don't think any of the attributes that he describes are, like, particularly abnormal in terms of attributes of importance and particularly kingliness in a bunch of different cultures across the world. Beards are a symbol of masculinity. Big hats are usually a symbol of power. Yeah. Robes, again, power, godliness, etc. Also just fashion in a lot of places. People make dresses because it's that's, like, the easiest type of garment to make. Robes. I don't know about the handbags. That one's weird, but I think... I The, the handbags, the handbags, like, I'm not going to say here that, like, it's unreasonable that there would be some sort of, like, bag that somebody would be carrying that's, you know, sim symbolic. However, it just makes me think of a bunch of, like, real housewives walking around with, like, Birkin bags or whatever. Yeah, the fact that he used the term handbags really sent me. And then he says, quote... Fundamentally, I think we need to trust the myths. I don't know where that accent just went. Um, it went to place. <laughs> um, to which I wrote a note that says, Sir, I am going to travel you back in time to meet Euhemerus. <laughs> For those who don't know Euhemerus, he's an ancient philosopher. I don't even know when from, but he he came up with a theory, a theory which is named after him, Euhemerism, which basically theorizes that, in fact, that the gods are actually ancient mortal kings whose real lives we have forgotten about and they have been transformed into gods over time, which has been disproved historically, to be clear. Oh, yeah. So also the thing is, is again, we you, you sort of see as well evidence for sort of like a the transmission of maybe a specific 
type of flood myth because the Greek flood myth is very similar. Mm-hmm. Like the Deucalion and Pyrrha, like, oh, the the original man turned like turned evil so they we flooded the world like the fact that there's that really specific storytelling aspect of this like oh the people became evil so the gods had to kill them all with a flood like that's a very specific thing which might indicate okay this is myth that has been has been passed sort of culturally over time so anyway basically all this to say just because a story has been told by multiple cultures doesn't mean that it's based on a shared history. It might just be a shared story. People share stories. Yeah. That's like the most frequent form of cultural exchange, I'm going to say, with no assurance. Julia. Yes. People share stories? I, no. I know. And so speaking of people... Groundbreaking. Sh- and so s- speaking of people sharing, he talks about these civilizing heroes arriving by boat from over the sea and, like, sharing advanced knowledge. And, like, yeah, people were sailing and traveling around, and I think it's pretty reasonable to have stories about strangers come from far away, especially from over the sea, which might have been a significant, like, a significantly mysterious faraway place to, especially to, like, Gobekli Tepe, which is pretty landlocked, to say that, like, people arriving over water... Uh, may have come from very far away and have knowledge to share. Like, yeah, cultural and scientific exchange was immensely normal in even the most very ancient Mediterranean. Despite what yeah. some people would maybe have you believe, not every contact between every civilization prior to, like, the invention of the UN was war. People were capable of, like, being nice. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, the UN was invented and war was over. Yeah, or, or fucking Confirmed. whatever. Like, you know what I mean, though? Like, some people seem to yeah, think no, that no, no, pre-modern right. history is just all about... Well, and, like, it's a very colonialist mindset that the only way to interact with the civilization that you've never encountered before is to kill them. Yeah. And that's just not true, and it's never been true. Like, people have, in fact, been trading and exchanging knowledge and art and stories and shit forever. Humans yeah. are social animals. Hashtag confirmed. In summary, be nice. We're going to talk about the sky now. Because. Okay. I. This is just, there's so much of this shit. All right. So, sorry. I guess I should, I guess I should preface before we get into the sky. (laughs) So, there's two things that he talks about before he, he brings in his expert on the sky, which are the preface to talking about the sky. The first one is he talks, he compares Gobekli Tepe to this site in Malta about how these like temples are open to the sky and they look kind of similar. And like, here's what I have to say about that. Roofs are hard. The sky is cool. <laughs> and most importantly, Lighting indoor spaces is really fucking hard. Yeah. Like, yeah, roofs and light are both two things that are very, very hard and took people a very, very long time to figure out. Like, why the fuck would you put a roof on something when that's just going to trap you in either darkness or so much fucking smoke? Because there's no way to light an indoor space without fire. And like, yeah, at this at this stage and like. Nobody wants to be inside with all that fucking smoke, so they just wouldn't put a roof on it. So, of course, a bunch of people built temples that were open to the sky. That's just logical. 
Yeah, yeah. Roofs, I, I didn't even think of that, but roofs are really, really hard to build because, right, you have to think of something that's like yeah. supporting a bunch of weight between two pillars. And in order, so you kind of see this with basically with Egyptian temples, right? Mm. Because so people hadn't really figured out how to support a big stone roof. So it, to span a long space with a big piece of stone. So what they did is they just built like an unhinged number of columns. Yeah. <laughs> like just like like the entire space is columns because they're like, how do we support the roof? Um, and then people figured out like, I forget what it's called. It's like gabling maybe, but basically you sort of make like a stepped little. I think you're thinking of corbeling. Yeah. Cor- thank you. Corbeling. <laughs> I only know this because... Embarrassing that I don't know that. I only know that because my grandmother's cartoonist name is Eve Corbel because she liked that. That's really funny. She liked that word and so she took it. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, so then people went to like corbeling and you actually see this in the pyramids of Giza basically to make like one of the chambers because obviously you have a fuck ton of weight on top of a chamber in the middle of the pyramid. Yeah. Um, You can't just make a little box like that wouldn't support the roof um, when you have millions of tons of stone on top so basically you make a little sort like a triangular roof but it's like sort of stepped so there's like like horizontal pieces of stone like stepped one on top of the other to make a little triangle and then the romans figured out the arch which basically how arches work it's really cool it's basically the only thing holding an arch together um is the pressure so it's actually the the pressure of the stones that against each other that means that they don't collapse yeah arches are dope as fuck they're very cool but they're also like you know they're reasonably they're quite complicated it took a while it took a long long time for people to figure out the arch and actually it's the same things with domes dome is the, the domes use the same principle so a dome is held together by the pressure of those stones yeah pressed against each other scary so just just think about that. I don't, I would prefer not to. Roofs, roofs are hard, in conclusion, especially monumental roofs are hard. When you're trying to make a big piece of monumental architecture with stone. Well, so, and so pursuant to that, the, the other thing that I'll say is that it's actually not impossible that there was a roof on this thing. It was just like thatched or something like that. So it's gone. Yeah. It's very possible that there was a roof and now it just, it got eaten by time. And now it's not there anymore. Like, wh- like yeah. who the fuck knows? Organic materials disappear. If there was a roof, it might not have been made out of stone. And then there's just no way to fucking know. Anyways, long story short, this whole thing of like, ooh, people were building like identical temples that were open to the sky is bullshit. And it doesn't hold up at all. Um, just like everything else. So the other thing that doesn't hold up is that he talks about how um, the alignments of the pillars seem to have targeted Sirius. And I will say again, first of all, he does not, despite obviously having access to the technology, calculate where Sirius was during the building, the approximate period of building of these different enclosures. He could, he doesn't, which to me suggests that either it's not good enough to say with confidence or... He doesn't feel the need to prove it, which uh, I disagree. I needed I needed to see that to believe it. Um, so I'm going to choose to believe that that's bullshit. Secondly, he even if it's not bullshit, um, and in fact these the alignments of the pillars do target the star Sirius at the 
periods of the buildings of these different enclosures, and in that, that, that that is also the case in Malta. Um, here's what I'll say about that. Sirius is like the brightest star in the sky and people have very frequently navigated by it and presumably, as, as we're about to um, discuss, potentially also like told time by it or used its location to, you know, as like an identifying factor in, in the like starscape. Um, so it's actually pretty reasonable to target Sirius specifically. I, I don't necessarily think that there's anything like mysterious about why they would point at Sirius or why why people like build stuff in alignment with the stars that's like not controversial that people did that yeah like (laughs) obviously people did that it's like what about when you are leaving going to or leaving the temple during the day and you need to know what direction to go in order to get home well conveniently the temple has been built to point in the same fucking direction as that you would use to navigate by at night. Great. Done. Anyway. Yeah, I I I will preface this with I honestly don't know anything about the stars and archaeology. So I'm going to try not to comment too much on this because frankly I don't want to be ca- talking out of my ass. However, <laughs> I'm just like this is the like get- I'm spitballing too, but this is this is the thing is like and I think this is the point that in some ways I'm trying to prove by spitballing like this, that there are many very simple and direct explanations for the things that he raises. It does yeah. not have yeah. to be the crazy, fucked up, like weird conspiracy that is completely without evidence that he poses. Like, guess what, buddy? Yeah. I can come up with weird theories with no evidence too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- I personally think that mine are simpler and more reasonable. Yeah, like yours are something that somebody could look at and test. Yeah, like just like, check. Oh, yeah, that might be a thing a person would do. If he had shown me on the fucking screen him checking the alignment of Sirius at, during the building of these enclosures, I would have been much more willing to accept that. But instead, I'm, wait. So what does he show? So because he shows like yeah. So okay. So about the stars. Yeah. So let's talk about Star Guy because we're gonna we're gonna talk about so okay. the thing that comes next I is need- Star Guy. Do you know, so did you look up anything about Stargai? I did not look up anything about Stargai. So uh, for the listener, so what <laughs> so, happens is he goes to this museum and he's like, ah, yes, this scholar, uh, he, he's, um, he's like a. Okay, let me read, let, okay, let me read you this. Okay, so he said, Dr. Martin Sweatman, a trained scientist interested in archaeoastronomy. Oh, yeah, that's what he said. I was okay. like, oh, no, this is going nowhere good if he said a trained scientist interested in. And oh, I shit. thought, okay, maybe he's like, yeah. he's like, okay, I, he's like, oh, maybe he's like, I don't know, a physicist or like a, an astronomer. Or something. I don't know, maybe he's some like... A, he has a vaguely similar discipline and he became interested in archaeology. No, it's so much worse. Do you know what he is a professor of? No. Chemical engineering. Chemical engineering? <laughs> Wait, yeah. no, this is the guy we should have fucking carbon dating shit. <laughs> what? I think I think he might he does I think he might actually work on that. But yeah, no, he's a chemical engineer. Oh no. Oh buddy. So he's so he I mean, okay, so here's the thing. What he presents as a theory is not, like, complete fucking bullshit nonsense, but I guess he's really not an expert, huh? No. Uh, no. Again, the reason he says trained scientist interested in archaeoastronomy, all of those words are true. But it's it's trying to tell you the implication of that is that he is 
trained in archaeoastronomy. But he so what 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 Graham Hancock says here, again, the way he phrases it, nothing he says is a lie, but the implication is a lie. Right. Because he's a chemical engineer. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Okay. Well, so I'm going to be honest. I assumed that he was trained in astronomy. Oh, no, no, no. All right. I, that at least would have been reasonable, but okay. Well, that sucks. Because, and so here's why I'm so dismayed about this, which is that this dude says the most reasonable shit that we have heard thus far in the episode. Like, the shit that he says is, like, pretty sane as far as the nonsense in this episode goes. So what he says is, basically, so they end up talking about a specific pillar at Gobekli Tepe, what is referred to as uh, the vulture stone. Um, It's a pillar. It's got a vulture on it, as well as a bunch of other animal figures. And so what he basically says is, I think these are asterisms, which we would call, like, it's, it's what we would call a constellation, but specifically the... Mm. things that are represented by the constellation is it the asterism the thing made out of stars um austria latin star and so they actually visually demonstrate how these figures map onto the stars in the sky um and he also talks about these stylized representations of sun sun rises or sunsets i can't remember which he says and those also i looked at them and i was like I don't know. I was, you know, that's a bit of a reach, but it's not no, completely no. out of. D- those ones were a reach because he showed like a circle and he was like, ah, yes, it's the sun. And it's just like a circle. Like he doesn't really show any contextual thing that would indicate, ah, yes, that's the sun. It was just a tiny, like it was a s- significantly smaller circle than, than, and just surrounded by stuff. There's a single small circle, but then there's also these like half circles that are kind of on horizons, which I was like, okay, I'm willing to buy this in context. And the context is that he whips out an iPad and maps <laughs> these stars to locations to a particular date and the like sun diagrams to like dates of solstices essentially like this is where the stars would have been on these solstices whatever um and that that essentially this carving if these are in fact a representation of the shapes of the stars at the time that this might be indicating the date perhaps at which the pillar was carved I immediately asked, as he was talking about this, I was like, do they actually map onto a given date? Can we calculate this by figuring out where the stars were based on backward extrapolation of movements? Because I know that's a thing that you can do. And fucking Hancock pulls out an iPad and he does that. He does actually map it. And it maps onto about (laughs) a 100-year window that just predates the construction of Gobekli Tepe. So this this filled me with rage because he... His his then argument from that is that, oh, well, we have this hundred year range and this hundred year range is the difference between the the exact date from the start of the Younger Dryas to the construction of Gobekli Tepe. I think it's the end of the Younger Dryas to the construction. But yeah. Yeah. So he's like. Which that does no. not check out. Now, I wouldn't... Everything I... Because what, going back to the radiocarbon dating... Yes. We can... The, the error margin can be several hundred years. So, and I don't actually know what the error margin on these, the dates for Gobekli Tepe are, but you can have an error 
error margin of several hundred years. So again, the estimate of the date of Gobekli Tepe could be several hundred years on either side, which means this argument is bullshit. I will say, <laughs> um, according to Wikipedia, which this is, so this is very easy to Google, and there are even two citations on Wikipedia, <laughs> both of which seem to be actual articles. Uh, quote, radiocarbon dating shows that the earliest exposed structures at Gobekli Tepe were built between 9500 and 9000 BCE. So it's a 500 year range. Yeah. So, look, I am reasonably willing to accept that it's possible that this this starscape dating situation is to in some manner a representation of like when fucking thing was built or maybe when it was conceived or something like that. Like like I don't know, this didn't feel like total horseshit. It was uh, it's one of the few things in the episode where they showed some evidence on screen of why this might make sense as an explanation instead of Hancock just talking out of his ass at the camera. <sighs> yes. Well, the other thing that I didn't like is Hancock was like, oh, well, these look like the Zodiac symbols. And oh, I'm like, yeah. I mean, he compared, well, he compares them to the, <laughs> the, the modern constellations that we see in that same part of the sky. Which is what, what kind of like gives me a hmm because then you're essentially mapping future stuff back on the past and also there are lots of little dots in the sky yeah i mean so this is the thing is you like you can draw a pat right and again the thing is is like i don't i don't know about this so i'm you know trying not to comment on it too much but the the dating thing is bad yeah i think <laughs> i think what all this hangs on is that there's a scorpion on the pillar that maps onto Scorpio, the the modern constellation Scorpio, and going off of that, the others seem to map on to some degree. Was my understanding yeah. of how that hung together, I, which I I don't know, like maybe it's bullshit. I don't know anything about astronomical archaeology or whatever the fuck they call. Was that was that the term that they used? He called it astroarchaeology. I don't actually know if that's a thing. Oh no, sorry. Archaeoastronomy. Archaeoastronomy. I I don't know uh, anything about archaeoastronomy. I maybe this is all bunk. It was just the most reasonable seeming thing in the episode. It was the thing I was the most convinced by. I'll 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 put it that way. But then all of the shit that then he gets into talking about the younger Dryas and it all gets it's all downhill from there. He he talks about the younger Dryas. Yeah. To be clear, it was basically like a baby ice age that happened after the big ice age. There was a big freezing period and then there was a big flood, which raised the sea levels because all the fucking ice melted. And he's like, ah, they're memorializing this world changing event of like, oh, my God. Flood. And like. I think what was happening is that as the world emerged from the younger Dryas, and again, I'm wildly spitballing here. If he can do it, so can I. Fuck you, Graham Hancock. I think probably what was happening is that as the climate stabilized, warmed up, everything became more arable, more fertile, people were not struggling as much to, to fucking stay alive and were able to develop culture and create a more settled pattern of living and returning to the same sites, encouraging the building of, of stable, singular monuments in a single location because they weren't fucking dying of being cold all the time. I, like, he thinks that it's that they were memorializing this prior civilization that was destroyed, but frankly, I suspect there wasn't a huge amount of quote-unquote civilization to speak of prior to this. Like, it was just really hard to live. It must have been very, very hard to live in a world that was 
just cold, like winter all the time. But with the end of the long winter came fertility and prosperity and they can like build shit now. Great. Here, Here's the thing too, is that people argue like th- this is a, an incredible venue of debate is like, again, the, the development of these sorts of technologies, like the, the development of monumental architecture and farming and city states are things that people debate a lot and debate the minutia of and... So there is lots of explanations that people suggest and argue about, and this is not one of them. Yeah. So the the idea that, like, archaeologists have some sort of settled understanding of how this stuff happened is, like, is like archaeologists can't provide an explanation. And it's like, well, well, it's weird because it's like, A, archaeologists can't provide an explanation, and B, archaeologists are so, like, set in their idea of what happened. And... It's both archaeologists don't know ever anything and archaeologists, like, think they know everything and refuse to accept new information if it's offered to them. And it's like, yes. first of all, I don't think both of those things even could be true. Like, that feels like a logical fallacy. But also, it's just not true. The, the, the truth is, is that archaeologists are constantly arguing about things, as are all academics. Yeah. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> Graham, I don't know what you want from us. Do you want us to provide an explanation and stick to it and, like, be confident in the explanation we're providing? Or do you want us to admit that we don't fucking know and accept new explanations when they're offered? Because he seems to want both all archaeologists to admit that they don't know anything and can't explain any of this shit in, like, a settled way and to be, like... No, there must be a clear explanation. And it's like, you can't... I just don't know that you can have it both ways. I I think that it's kind of a flawed way of thinking to be like, you have to both have all of this uncertainty, but also to be certain about the theory that you are putting forth. I mean, once again, like, this is a grift, right? Yes, like, yeah. I mean, it's, it is. It is, it I, don't, is I don't think Graham Hancock cares about any of this really maybe he does but the point of this is that it's a grift and he's making a lot of money on telling archaeol telling the public that archaeologists are stupid and elitist and you shouldn't listen to us and making the audience feel smarter than the elite archaeologists yeah which is like look i think that it is important for a layman to feel that they have access to knowledge and are able to become expert to some degree But I think that the way that you become an expert in something is by learning about it by way of looking at evidence and thinking critically about things and developing, like, ways of thinking. And, like, in that way, I understand the draw of the rhetoric of the just asking questions crowd. Because, like, I do want people to ask questions about things in the world. I want people to investigate things and be curious about them. But... I don't think that the way to do that is to accept wild theories that are totally unevidenced. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's like there are questions that are not worth worth asking. It's like, oh, are pigs controlling our society? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> like, 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 again, it's like, oh, I'm just asking the question. And it's like, well, why the fuck would you ask that question? Well, yeah, like, like, where, like, where are you going with this? What, what does it, what does it mean if the answer is yes? That's what I, so yeah. th- like, that, I think, 
comes is what it comes down to to some degree for me. What does it mean for our understanding of the world if indeed there is some vast prehistoric pre younger Dryas ice age culture that has been lost that somehow taught all of this stuff, all this technology to stone age indigenous groups all over the planet. I I think this is where we get to the part where for at long last, after a long career of constantly saying the quiet part out loud, the quiet part is staying quiet in this, which is that Graham Hancock believes that this pre-civilization that were destroyed were white people. And so for him, if this was true, what it would prove is that is the supremacy of white people. But he's not saying that, which means that the whole thing is totally without legs. Either own up to your ideological horseshit or shut the fuck up and go away. Well, that's the thing. Is that, is that apparently Graham Hancock... I saw this really good Twitter thread that I should have saved somehow, but I didn't because I have four brain cells, about how, how Graham Hancock... Um, apparently there's a, a text that existed, I think it's from the early 1900s, that Graham Hancock, like, drew a lot from writing his initial books. And that te- text is, like, explicitly white supremacist. Yeah. It's a, it's a text about, I think... Um, uh, Atlantis or something. I yeah, don't know. he's big into Atlantis. Um, and so one of the things, yeah, I remember I remember seeing something about that in an article. And, and one of the things I remember reading about him is that he used to openly say that it was a white race that existed, that, that this was a white civilization. And he's no longer saying that explicitly, I think, because he knows that it won't ride with quite as much of the like. Because because the just asking questions crowd likes to pretend that they're not racist. It's like, oh, no, we're just asking questions. And they immediately lose the cover of that if they start fucking talking about, like, you know, the perfect white race. Like, the, it goes away. Yeah. And they don't I mean, want to be accused of being Nazis. I mean, I think this is a thing with, like, him and Joe Rogan, right? Like, why... You know, he appears on Joe Rogan. Why he uses Joe Rogan is because Joe Rogan is Mr. Just Asking Questions. Yeah. He's like, well, I provide a platform to everybody. Yeah. I don't have an opinion, but then he provides a platform to racists. Yeah. But then he's like, well, I'm just providing a platform to everybody. I'm not a white supremacist. But it's like, okay, you're choosing to platform white supremacists. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. And so. But yeah. yeah. It, it, it's this fairly... He wouldn't get a Netflix show if he was like, this proves that the white race did everything, right? Like, that's not going to happen. You can't so. you can't openly say that and be platformed in the way that he is being platformed by Netflix right now. And so he, he keeps the quiet part quiet. But without it, all of this means nothing. There's no, yeah. there's no guts to the theory because yeah. it comes to nothing. Because the theory basically... His theory is based on the fact this is the logical explanation if, quote unquote, primitive hunter gatherers 100 percent could not have come up with any of this stuff. And that is based on the fact that only white people could have done this. Yeah, that is that is what makes the theory make sense. And that's it. Yeah. And so what we come down to is this obfuscatory like. Oh, well, we're just not going to really, like, get into this. And, like, he just, he doesn't say the thing. And, I mean, maybe he gets more explicit or at least more directly gestural towards the, like, white supremacist angle of all of this in other episodes. I don't know, apparently. So, by all accounts, 
and I feel like we're wrapping up. So I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple things. I, I read a few articles reviewing this show. Um, there's one, there's one on Slate. There's one on Slate. There's one, um, which is what I quoted earlier. Uh, and there's one on um, at The Guardian, which refers to it as the most dangerous show on Netflix. Shout out to The Guardian. They're right. Um, and also, <laughs> I believe this blog, a guy, a, a scholar named Carl Fegans wrote a blog post that talks in quite a great amount of detail about certain stuff. And, you know, he brings up some other problematic figures who appear on the show. By all accounts in these other um, things that I read about the show, this episode is actually pretty mild as far as his rancid just asking questions shit and screeds against modern archaeologists go. Like, this episode is pretty mild as far as all of that. Which, great, great. (laughs) Um, because this one's already pretty bad. Yeah. It's just like, and he brings up these like trailing ends at the end of the episode where he's like, oh, the structures were all rapidly buried. And he's like, hmm, maybe they were preserved by burying them for future times. And I'm like, they probably just abandoned the site and didn't want people taking the stones and wandering away with them to build their own shit. Because that's a thing that people did all the time. Or it was a sacred site and they didn't want it to be destroyed. Like, there's lots of reasons why somebody might bury a site like this. I don't know. I Well, just... like, you see examples of this with, like, you know, figurine. Like, you have people, like, intentionally, like, breaking or hiding items of, like, uh, religious or spiritual significance. Like, that's, like, a thing we see elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are explanations for these things yeah. that are not a mysterious white ancient civilization. Yeah, totally. Um, also, according to him, snakes are the message. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why snakes are the message. Apparently, snakes are what is in common, but I don't, I'm not going to watch the rest of it. So I'm not going to learn why snakes are the message. Yeah, um, he, that's, but I think I'll survive. Yeah, that's his like tie into the next episode. I'm sure he follows some kind of thread throughout because like he calls back to previous episodes and he's also like setting up to talk about, I think it's this, I think it's called the snake mound or the serpent mound in, I want to say Ohio. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. So yeah, like he's really globetrotting here, but yeah, it's like, okay, all right. This this show is really bad. Yeah, nobody watched this. It's racist. It's weird white supremacist conspiracy theory nonsense. It's anti-intellectual. If you want to learn about this site, I'm sure there are great articles about it. I, I asked a friend of mine who knows a little more about the site about it, and he told me that the best stuff that he's ever read about it is unfortunately in German because that's who excavated it is the Germans. Like the initial excavation was done by Germans. Oh, not the Germans. Yeah. So if you can read German, I'm sure there's a lot of great shit out here to read on that. Otherwise, fucking go read Wikipedia. Like, I'm sorry. I know Wikipedia is like Wikipedia, but you know who maintains Wikipedia? Like this is so um, hoops in this interview, this late interview says like, you know who maintains Wikipedia? Nerds. You know who t- maintains articles about <laughs> Neolithic sites on Wikipedia? Ancient history nerds. So it's probably like, and I was looking at the article about this site. It is very thorough. There's a fuck ton of photos and diagrams. Like it's extremely long. It's a really long article. There's a ton of information. There's so many photos of all of the beautiful sculpture. Bro, go read the Wikipedia article about this. Do not watch this show. 
I just, uh, it, it just made me insane. Allison, remember when you said, oh, hopefully this hour, this show can be, uh, this recording can be less than two hours. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It did not happen. Um, <laughs> this is our longest recording. Oh, by I far. Think. And to finish off, Allison, I have a petty gripe. <laughs> After all of my significantly more major gripes, here's my petty gripe. <laughs> This fuckhead vacillates all throughout the show between saying so-and-so number of years ago and such-and-such BC, and it makes it impossible to keep track of what fucking date he's talking about. My brain- This is, you know what, you're not wrong. My brain doesn't do numbers. Like, I maybe to some people this would be a more major gripe because, like, obviously it's just another fucking rhetorical bullshit, but, like, compared to everything else, it's super petty, and also it's only a major problem for me because I can't keep numbers in my head for longer than two seconds at a time. So it pissed me off, even though it's, like, relatively minor compared to all the other shit he does. I've made really stupid mistakes before with, like, BCE and CE. Like, I've I've written, I'd be like, oh, that's 4,000 years old. And it's like, and then somebody would be like, bestie, that's 6,000 years old. It's 4,000 BCE. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, oh. Yeah. That was stupid. <laughs> like, I've done that repeatedly. Um, and I have a master's degree. So it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. I just... Ugh god that's a that's a valid petty gripe do you have any final thoughts no i my final thought is that my soul is dead and i have no brain cells left graham hancock killed all of them yeah (laughs) fuck this guy in summary fuck this guy fuck this show don't watch it and also don't be racist (laughs) thank you (laughs) good night white supremacy is bad yeah white supremacy is bad just in case you didn't know like white people are not the shit (laughs) whiteness is a construct folks yeah oh god all right well this was a nightmare and in exchange for this fucking what will probably after edit still be like a two and a half hour long fucking episode um, you're not getting a salty one for a while. We have to talk about things that we like or we'll go insane. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. And if you'd like to support our podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod, where we also post extras and outtakes. Our next episode, at the request of some beloved listeners, will be on The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>